welcome to One Week, One Year, a podcast where we watch and discuss a year of film history. Every episode, starting in 1895, the dawn of cinema. This week, we are on our 40th episode, which is 1930. Is uh, it our 40th episode? Yes, it is. Okay, because we've we cut, cut a couple bonus ones in there, so mm-hmm. I wasn't sure what That's the counting the bonus like. episodes and okay, the wrap-up cool. episodes. So we're on episode 40 right now. I'm one of your hosts, Chris Selly. I'm a film projectionist, and joining me as always is... I am Glenn Covell. I'm a filmmaker. And uh, we are podcasters who have painstakingly gone through every single year in film history up to 1930, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna work on this next year for you. If you are listening to this on your podcast app, you can watch it on YouTube if you like. Uh, there is a, uh, you know, we show, uh, we've got some little bonus information on the YouTube upload. Uh, but now that all this stuff is public domain or not public domain anymore and, mm-hmm. uh, the, uh, people, the rights holders have been a little, um, mean to us as far as, uh, <laughs> uh, fair use and all that, which this should be. But anyway, uh, we don't really have film clips anymore on YouTube. If you'd like to see clips, you can watch some of our older episodes that are public domain. But if you don't want to watch, you can listen on your podcast app of choice. Just search us up there. Uh, and yeah, follow us on Instagram, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and, uh, and let's get started with the show. Okay. Uh, Glenn, how's it going? What's, what's going on? Not much, uh, still unemployed, but you know, it's been nicer in New York city. I went to the park this past mm. week. And you mean Central say, Park? I did go to Central Park. Yeah. Because mm. I was uptown for once. I'm not usually around there, but it was a nice day. So I went to Central Park. And not once, I passed not one, but two groups of people that were playing the Alicia Keys New York song, just blasting <laughs> it. And so it was very, like, cliche, you know, Sunday afternoon in New York. Were they tourists, or were they, like... I don't know. It was yeah. just people were just loving being in New York that day, which, you mm. know, is a good feeling. Uh, I'm in Denver. Different city. How's that? That's Okay. I, uh... No one playing the Alicia Keys Denver song? <laughs> no, they're all playing the John Denver song about West Virginia. Oh, okay. Uh, which is still a Denver song somehow. Hmm. Uh, no, that's a lie. I don't know. I've got my... I forgot if I mentioned this recently, but I've got my I Think You Should Leave themed party coming up. <laughs> and, I'm so, uh... I'm so yeah. annoyed with myself that I probably can't go hot dogs but. sloppy steaks uh we're also gearing up for the denver silent film festival which is going to be in about a month yeah but uh that's happening now what was happening in 1930 glenn would you like to give us a little extra context for what was happening in 1930 sure thing the news of the year 1930 the indian national congress declares its independence from the british empire the existence of the celestial body Pluto is confirmed. Mahatma Gandhi sets off on a 200-mile march towards the sea with 78 followers to protest against the British monopoly on salt. Amy Johnson becomes the first woman to fly solo from England to Australia. The Shadow debuts on the radio, striking fear into the hearts of listeners across the United States. The Vietnamese Communist Party is formed. The motion picture production code set forth by Willie Hayes is adopted in Hollywood, but only loosely enforced. 
And that last one is relevant, I think, to the movies we watched. That's right. Because... We're in pre-code era, baby. Yeah, which I had a like passing understanding of, but I, I have only recently kind of fully understood what the pre-code era is, which is... Mean? Well, and it's sort of loose, right? Like what the start and end of it are. Like the it's sure. generally considered 1927 to 1934, mm-hmm. which is sort of the period of time between the introduction of sync sound, feature films with sync sound, and the like formal enforcement of the Hayes Code, which didn't really happen until 1934. Mm-hmm. And so there's this pretty brief, in particular, yeah, brief kind of period in Hollywood where the Hayes Code existed, but no one really cared about it. And so the movies are a little bit racier, a little bit more violent. There's more cussing in them. Mm-hmm. They're still very tame by modern standards, but it's like, I don't know, it is, it's kind of cool to see just like a little bit old movies that are a little bit more relaxed with their self-censorship yeah and these next four years of movies they will be potentially the raciest movies the raciest hollywood movies that we're going to be getting for the Mm -hmm. next 30 years pretty much yeah which i mean from what i've seen is like it's not it's not that much but it's still more than (laughs) certainly more than like 40s or 50s movies tend to be so Mm -hmm. i guess also people consider 1930 to be the beginning of the golden age of hollywood oh well that seems maybe a bit... That's even looser than <laughs> pre-code, I feel like. Golden age. Um, the yeah, the is... peak studio system during the sound era, I suppose. Right. Yeah. Well, it's, it is sort of colloquially, I guess, what at least Americans consider the golden age, right? It's like, it's old-timey. They're making musicals and gangster pictures. It's the, Yeah, it's the classic stuff. It's the classic... Why don't we jump right from one segment into the next mm. with one week, one reel? Uh, a couple movies that are actually one reel this time. Yeah, right. <laughs> Very true. Maybe even half a reel, actually. Yeah, they're pretty uh, short. We've got two Fleischer Brothers animated films this, yeah. this episode. Which we haven't talked about any Fleischer Brothers stuff yet, right? Oh, we definitely have. <laughs> oh, we have. Yeah. Okay. Uh, out of the inkwell, certainly. Uh, oh, okay. Right. Uh, God, there's there's been others. I think we okay. talked about one recently, too. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, because they're sort of the, uh, I guess, at this point, a rival to Disney's animation. Yeah, these two uh, animated shorts, Dizzy Dishes and Swing You Sinners, both produced by Max Fleischer, but directed by Dave Fleischer, mm-hmm. feel very uh, kind of like quintessential, like '30s cartoon. It's good. It's it's good stuff. Yeah, in both good and bad. I mean, the only bad way I would say is that uh, there's some definitely some kind of the racism. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the racism, the 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 caricature, and the the yeah, it's, that's creeping in there for sure. It's not maybe as in your face as maybe some other stuff, but uh, it's they're occasionally just like, oh, yikes. Yeah, specifically in these two with some just kind of random, like, Jewish stereotype kind of guys. Yeah. In them. Yeah. But on both of these, I was just like, oh, yeah, that's that's there. There we go. 
But yeah. other than that, I think they're both pretty fun. Just in how silly and kind of, uh, I don't know. They both have a lot of fun with cartoon logic, I guess. I think we talked about that a bit with like yeah, the early yeah. Disney stuff also. These feel like they're taking it a little further even. Yes. I Honestly, I, I really, I like what these are doing more than what Disney's doing right now. I think like the Fleischer brothers, as you were saying, really define that 1930s cartoon style. And mm-hmm. Disney has always been in Fleischer's shadow uh, up till now and mm-hmm. only really appear recently. These movies, they feel like kind of amped up. Like let's let's take cartoons to their extremes right now. Mm-hmm. I think I think some of the the cell animated stuff that we have been talking about in years past has uh, been like cartoony and squashy and stretchy at moments, but like Swing You Sinners is just so much vibrant movement, off the wall cartooniness. Yeah, unreal things happening. That like you know things stretching and transforming and in cartoon logic ways. Right. It's, it's not even it's not even squash and stretch. It's like things like transforming and morphing into other things. Yeah. Just through you know cartooniness. Like anything can be anything else. Yeah. They both have a bit of a kind of like dream or nightmare logic to them, right? Where mm-hmm. right anything is anything. And so it it is the speed at which like characters or objects will just become other things is is very <laughs> is palpable. It's all very like let's throw any idea that we've got out there um and then yeah, yeah like make it zany looking. I mean it's almost like the kind of early slapstick shorts where mm-hmm. they have a premise and then they're like let's get everything that we can out of this premise. Uh but these get to be a lot more visually inventive because they're not based in the real world, yeah. which is good because uh, movies, due to the restrictions of sound, are getting less visually inventive. So right. uh, cartoons can pick up the slack. Yeah. Although these cartoons have sound because yes. they are, as stated in the opening credits of each, talk cartoons. Talk cartoons. Talk cartoons. Talk cartoons. I hardly know her tunes. <laughs> Um, and they're both musicals, I guess, kind of. Or they're both very musically based. They, they, yeah, they include music. I mean, so uh, "Swing You Sinners" is about uh, uh, Bimbo, which is the Fleischer Brothers cartoon dog mascot, uh, mm-hmm. who probably Mickey Mouse was sort of made in the image of in certain ways. He is trying to steal a chicken. He gets caught by a cop. He runs into a graveyard, and then a bunch of ghouls and spirits <laughs> chastise him for uh, for being a sinner and stealing chicken, and they do that in song. Uh, yeah. And then they do a bunch of creepy stuff to uh, yeah. <laughs> to 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 scare the scare, scare the daylights out of him. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, dancing gravestones and uh, butt slapping ghosts, all kinds of fun stuff. It feels like an evolution of skeleton dance, but, like, way more involved. Yeah, yeah. I do think, comparing it to skeleton dance, or, like, the early Mickey Mouse stuff, I do feel like the animation in these feels a little looser and kind of less mechanical than those. Mm-hmm. It's got more energy. Yeah. They both have feel like you can kind of see the limits of the early animation in terms of, like, 
you can kind of see where they're where the walls are almost even if they're very off both these are very off the wall and very like don't really feel like they've been restricted in any sense <laughs> mm-hmm. in terms of what they can put on screen there, there's a little bit of like rough edges on some of the animation just because of how early it is i think there's rough edges but also like it is doing stuff that is kind of more involved than a lot of current day animation does. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that animation nowadays, they found ways to economize on things in a way that might not be, like, visually obvious all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it comes at the cost of this uh, rubber hose animation, is what they yeah. call it. Like, the rubber hose arms and legs that these characters have. Uh, because it lets... It's just animation is not really this expressive anymore, uh, yeah. for the most part. So cheap in some ways, but uh, but very expensive in other ways. Right? Yeah, it's a catchy tune. It's, uh, True. It's it, it's always a vibe having ghosts sing about your demise to you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> Which even even the premise feels like such a like nineteen thirties cartoon premise of. Go to a graveyard and have ghosts sing at you about how bad you are for stealing a chicken. <laughs> the other short, Dizzy Dishes, like, it structurally feels a lot more like an early Chaplin or Keaton short. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, a guy's a waiter. Hijinks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hijinks happen. Um, but, yeah, every character in this one is uh, an anthropomorphic animal, including... The first appearance of Betty Boop, who in her first appearance is a dog. She looks like more like a human than a lot of the other characters, but she's got these long dog ears, which you could almost see as if she had like uh, gauges in her ears and took them out and they're just dangling there. (laughs) She got floppy dog ears, but otherwise it's fairly recognizable as Betty Boop. Beatrice Boop, the the beloved. (laughs) She got the same voice. She got the same catchphrase. Yeah, she just kind of appears in there. Uh, it's mostly still about Bimbo the dog. Yeah, but uh, but this yeah. has a bit more like dialogue than Swing You Sinners, mm-hmm. and I feel like the it feels like very like it's one of those things where you, a lot of things from 1930s are less kind of right. We have a picture in our heads like what do people talk like in the 1930s, and it's usually this very exaggerated, you know, mid Atlantic accent sort of thing. And I feel like the dialogue in Dizzy Dishes is exactly, because it's a cartoon already, is exactly what, it's like the cartoon voice of people in the 1930s, how they spoke. It's very like, <laughs> meh, 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 you know, it's just this like nasal kind of loud uh, <laughs> way of talking. Yeah, yeah, very, very kind of, yeah, see, kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which I think we're going to be getting into some of the actors that actually popularized that where that voice comes from pretty soon, mm-hmm. um, which would be fun to talk about. I'm looking at my ultimate gangsters collection, Blu-ray right there past you go. the camera. <laughs> yeah. Daisy dishes is kind of insane. Uh, there's a lot of very weird jokes in it. There's a big mean dog. I think he's a dog, like a bulldog who's very hungry and wants a roast duck, but he, uh, because Ben was taking too long in the kitchen, he decides to make a sandwich out of the dishes on the table and eat that, and then proceeds to eat the table. 
He first eats the leg of the table. And he's then, the leg of the uh, table, which has a bone in it. <laughs> like he breaks, which is a, like perfect cartoon logic. Right. He breaks the table, the the leg off the table, and takes a big bite out of it, like it's a turkey leg. But then there's a bone in it, which and then he makes eats a bone. <laughs> introduces a whole concept of why are there bones in the table? Terrifying. <laughs> that was, I think, the thing I laughed at the most was just this guy eating everything around him, and it's almost like. Just through his interacting with it, it kind of becomes food. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the whole time he's just like, where's my roast duck? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But- and all the while, Bimbo is uh, getting distracted by various things. He he yeah. is preparing the roast duck by making it, put it, pretending it's a barber situation and covering yeah. it in shaving cream and all At this. At one point, and- he like chops up a bunch of things with knives that then somehow turn into a train that he like rides away on it's i feel like that was kind of an interesting joke because like you know the the chopping becomes so fast and so rhythmic that it sounds like the chug 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 of a train and then it like and then it just becomes a train all the stuff that he's chopping up because i was like oh he's gonna make food out of this that he's chopping up but then no it becomes a train for his (laughs) escape yeah and he just bursts through the wall on his food train yeah uh yeah they're a lot of fun yeah, minus Cartoons. the minus the caricature stuff, but yeah, I guess the Fleischer brothers are Jewish, so it uh, does that give them license to have? <laughs> like... Maybe I don't know. <laughs> sure, yeah. I mean, it's it's just an example of right. We don't see animation like this very much anymore outside of uh, Adventure Time or uh, Cuphead. Cuphead. That thank you. Cuphead, which is specifically referencing Fleischer brothers animation. Yeah. So it's like, it's cool to see this style, but it also comes with this thing of like, oh yeah, the 1930s were way more racist. Speaking of racism, let's talk Mm. about a movie that addresses that partially. Our first feature film of the episode. So play the the, our feature presentation. And now we're pleased to bring you our feature presentation. And now we're here to talk about borderline a movie that i had never heard of before like a week ago Mm -hmm. but so i have a story about how i watched this movie do we start should we start there yeah you know the story already but for the listener (laughs) so we were researching what movies to watch and this movie came up i was like this seems like an interesting thing that doesn't get talked about a whole lot and it's kind of a cool deep cut maybe lesser known or sort of more kind of independent independently produced movie and it, it does exist online to watch, but in researching it, we both found out that it uh, a 16mm print of this is uh, owned by the New York Public Library. Yeah. It just says that on the on the Wikipedia page for us. Like, right. There's a 16mm print in the New York Public Library. <laughs> um, so since I live in New York, I was like, I won't, will they let me just watch that one? And it turns <laughs> out, yes, they will, if you ask. Like, I... For somehow have gone this long without getting a library card at the New York Public Library. Shame. I had a I had a Brooklyn Public Library card, but not a New York Public Library card. So I went to the uh, you know the main branch, the Ghostbusters one, to get my library card, and it was very frustrating to have to wade through tourists. It's an it's an amazing building, but it was annoying to have to wade through tourists. Uh, just to, I was like, I'm here for library stuff. Excuse me. And then I found out that the print is not there. It's at the um, the Performing Arts Library in Lincoln Center, which makes sense. 
So I went up there and uh, the print actually hadn't shown up the day that I went that like I set my appointment for. So I went back the next day and the print had shown up and uh, yeah, I got a little kind of like private screening, a little like a little room they have there, like just like a library room, but they have a projector. They have a screen. They have a bunch of they had a bunch of old uh, editing machines also, which is pretty cool. Wow, it was I, like a screening room that they used for this kind of thing. I don't think it was built for that purpose. It was sort of more like like a classroom or like a conference room sort of thing. I see. But yeah, it's they have a sixty millimeter projector. Um, I think the print that I watched was struck. I think in the eighties after the movie was sort of rediscovered. Mm-hmm. So it was not an original print of it. Since I think it was shot on 35 millimeter and it was naturally would have been shot on nitrate. Yeah. So I don't think they would have let me watch a nitrate print. But shout out to uh, John at the New York Public Library for projecting it and talking to me about old film stuff. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I thought this was a, a cool and um, unusual movie for when it mm. came out. I, I gotta say, I didn't watch it under such special circumstances, and when I started watching the movie, I was like, ugh. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I started watching it, and I was immediately, like, leaning forward, like, alright, I'm gonna, like, watch this thing in a very academic way, and, like, try to absorb <laughs> as much of it as I can. Yeah, if you have a if you have a projectionist who is projecting it just for you, it's not something yeah. that you can easily yeah. just tune out, you know? <laughs> yeah. I did, I had to score it myself and it's a silent print so i had to just throw headphones on and listen to some contemporary classical music on spotify just to give it some score Mm -hmm. which i found out is very different from the score that is on the version of it's online i don't like that score i think that's part of why i didn't i wasn't feeling the movie yeah i'm i'm curious how much that would affect it right because it's like neither of the scores that we watched it with i think are original to what you know, I no. don't think this movie has a canonical score to it. We should probably talk about what this movie is and <laughs> what it's about and who made it. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'll just on the music really quick. Like I the the music on the Criterion release of this is some kind of like freeform jazz kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, which I don't conceptually have a problem with but i felt like it didn't really fit very well to the scenes that were happening in the movie Mm. Uh, i felt like tonally it like it was very dissonant and it was Mm -hmm. really like taking me out of the movie uh Mm. and so the first like half of the movie i was like kind of hating it and i was like all right let me reset let me like re like reset my mind i put on some different music that i just found off youtube and uh and i was like let me let me focus in again on what's happening and i did appreciate it afterward so what uh, what was the music that you found i just searched for mystery mystery movie score okay uh, and then played whatever playlist came up on youtube yeah because i i listened to it with uh what's his name max richter i think is the the composer who has done, I think, a couple film scores, but is uh, more of a kind of, like, contemporary classical composer. His one thing that he's most famous for is On the Nature of Daylight, which is in every movie, every movie, every TV show. If there's a sad scene, that that piece plays. It's in so many things. It's very, it's very good, but it, it's also at the point now where if I hear it in something, I'm just like, oh, here we go. Um <laughs> It was maybe a little bit dour for... I mean, the movie's not 
the most chipper movie in the world, but um, it maybe could have used something a little faster tempo. But anyway. Right. Uh, this movie is made in uh, a, way, a fashion that is very inspired by Soviet montage. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's uh, about something, I think, a little smaller scale than Bausch of Potemkin. Yeah. But a, a little more emotionally driven. But it's applying a lot of the same sort of techniques. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as like the quick cutting and showing parts of the scene to uh, that are off the action to just kind of get a sense of what's going on or like cutting to something that is sort of metaphorically resonant to mm-hmm. uh, what is happening in the main scene and just having like a shot of something else. Uh, yeah. I think that's part of what was sort of putting me off the movie a little bit because I think that like, when you combine it with this kind of like wordless emoting, uh, it, it feels a little formless. Uh, but uh, I think that some of it was quite well done, especially around the end of the movie. Yeah. Well, I think I think especially early on, it's the movie doesn't give a lot of it's not really prioritizing narrative clarity. Like yeah. for the first half, I didn't really understand what was happening in terms of the plot or how the characters in- related to each other or you know, you kind of pick up things just by how, you know, how people are reacting to certain things. But it's like, there's very few intertitles in this. And it starts kind of and media res. Like, it doesn't really have, like, an introduction where you, like, meet all the characters and find out who they are. It sort of starts with, like, the plot already in motion. And it's really going for, I think, the the kind of montage editing um also just the writing and the performances are really going for sort of creating a feeling over narrative clarity, right? It's like a lot of the reasons for individual shots or individual edits are not to sort of like convey a specific piece of information, but more to kind of give an emotional feeling. Yeah. It's, it's vibes forward, which I think maybe stands in contrast to Eisenstein, at least what we've seen of him, because like Eisenstein is building a vibe, but every Mm. cut has a purpose. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes this is doing some cutting that like, I'm like, okay, but why did you do that though? You know? (laughs) Yeah. It's, there's a lot of like thematic intercutting, right? Where it will, it'll cut from a person to just like wind blowing through some trees or a, or a kitty. There's some of it, which is, very abstract right and some of it which i think is like really really great uh uses of like match cuts there's a couple really really good match cuts in this movie yeah yeah definitely one with two knives that is like perfect it is like a great example of what a match cut kind of should be yeah from a scene of somebody kind of goofing around with a knife and then another scene where someone is kind of taking a bloody knife that they just killed someone with and throwing it in a bucket of water. Yeah. It's it's so seamless and it's like on the action so perfectly that it at for a split second you think that it's the same knife and then you realize we've cut away to a different scene. Yeah. Yeah. It's very good. There's something happening on one side of a door and someone's got their hand like on the door handle uh and then you are cutting to the other side of the door to a a hand that's on the other side of the door handle mm-hmm. to transition from one side of the door to the other scene wise. Mm-hmm. Uh, good stuff. 
this movie was made in Switzerland, and it has a lot of, uh, I think there's a lot of almost just, like, little kind of vignettes of, like, Swiss life, or kind of the the landscape and the, the countryside of Switzerland, which, I don't know, I like landscapes. I, I appreciated that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of reminded me almost of, to make a comparison to, like, a contemporary, or, like, a modern filmmaker, it has almost a sort of, like, uh, Terrence Malicky vibe. I could see that, yeah. In terms of, like, focusing a lot on just, like, the natural world and sort of, like, how the characters are interacting with it and also just drawing parallels between people's state of mind and sort of the, you know, the landscape around them. People's state of mind and the way that reeds move in the wind. <laughs> you, boy, boy, how did... There are some reeds in this movie blowing in the wind, let me tell you. Which is... It's very cinematic. What can I say? People... Filmmakers love reeds. And you know what? Count me amongst them. Filmmakers, not read lovers. Both, you know. Ah. Um, <laughs> give uh, me a good, yeah. give, me, give me a good Fragmites any day of the week. <laughs> Fragmite Joe Young, the perfect, <laughs> uh, the perfect con- confluence of filmmaking and. Uh, it's about a, a gorilla that uh, <laughs> likes brushing his hand through reeds. Uh, this movie is about racial prejudice uh mm-hmm. and uh love quadrangles yeah uh, as as and many jealousy. films are yeah and and uh yeah there's a lot of um there's just like a lot of like intrigue of like i'm with this person but i love this person but that makes me jealous so i'm going to confront this person about that and that's like the meat of the movie generally yeah. uh, and yeah. sprinkle in like how the two of the people involved are black in a white town and that there are people who are not fans of them because they're racist. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the movie makes that pretty explicit. There are some slurs thrown in there. So if, yeah. you, if you wondered how racist the characters were, it's like, oh, no, they're they know about half. There are, there are so few intertitles in this that about half of them have the N word. in them. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's like two out of four. Yeah. Um, cause there, I think there, if there's more than four, it's not by that many, there might be like six or seven total Yeah, at the most. This movie was made by a group of artists in, in Europe called the pool group that were mostly poets. Uh, the director of this movie, Kenneth McPherson. And then there were two, uh, sort of authors slash poets who had their sort of, um, you know, writing monikers were HD and uh, Briar, but uh, they had full names that I did not write down. Uh, Annie Winifred Ellerman and Hilda Doolittle. Yeah. And they were the, the pool group and they, you know, wrote intellectual uh, essays and poetry and short stories. And Kenneth McPherson had... He was already a filmmaker when he made this movie, but this is his first and only feature film. This movie's about, it's like a little over an hour. And uh, I, I can kind of see, this movie does have a bit of a kind of like European, like early 20th century, like intellectualist vibe to it, I guess. In terms of, I guess it's an avant-garde movie, right? And it's like playing around with very, at the time, like kind of cutting edge editing stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this movie formally in terms of like the form of it like how it's shot and edited and made is way more interesting than 
most of their stuff that we watched from this year. Like it's, it's, it's trying stuff, right? It's trying a lot of match cutting and a lot of fast edits and sort of like playing with time and space in terms of the editing and how it's being shot. And like, it's, it's playing with really big ideas of like prejudice and sort of like interpersonal relationships and things like that. Um, And it's doing it all without, without any handholding. It's not trying to like set forth this like a clear sort of like narrative with it. It's, it's like you said, very vibes forward. Mm. So I appreciated those things about it that it was like, I don't know, it was trying stuff. And it's, I don't know if I would necessarily call this an experimental movie. Maybe for the time it was. It's using an uncommon style, I suppose. I don't know if it necessarily did anything, any like one thing that had not been done before, but it was doing stuff that was, uh, it was using uncommon filmmaking techniques for a unique uh narrative purpose i suppose Mm -hmm. yeah i i liked it (laughs) yeah i i didn't like the first half because i'm a philistine and i uh and i did like the second half because i was like ooh, a moiter (laughs) a moiter um yeah there's a moiter a moiter in this movie i would like to see this movie again i only watched it once for the show but like even immediately after watching it i'm like i feel like i need to see this again one just because i didn't really follow the narrative very well the first time mm-hmm. and i think rewatching it with that in mind would be uh very helpful there is yeah. a i couldn't find it easily there is a like i don't know if it's an essay or if it's just sort of like a there's sort of a written piece accompanying the movie that was written by hd uh about it that i couldn't find anywhere online that i think is sort of meant to be a companion piece to it i sort of like read this thing and then watch the movie Mm-hmm. Or vice versa. And I only watch the movie. So maybe there's a bit of, you know, uh, what's the thing when, like, the Matrix video game ties into the movie? Different media combining? Um, <laughs> Transmedia, panmedia. media. I don't know. But there might be an element of that where it's like, you were supposed to actually read this thing along with it. And I didn't do that. Well, speaking of movies that don't make a lot of sense. <laughs> Good segue. <laughs> Uh, let's talk about. Uh, why don't you pronounce this? Actually, Mister Large Door, Large Door, or Large the, Door, Large Door, <laughs> or the Golden Age, which is a rough English translation. Mm-hmm. Age of Gold, Golden Age, whatever. Which is the uh, the follow up to uh, Ancien Andalou by mm-hmm. Louis Buñuel and uh, Salvador Dali. Yeah, uh, and it, it, it very much feels in the same ilk in the same uh yeah. the same realm uh but they've expanded out their you know, 17 minute shorts to uh a just over an hour long feature mm-hmm. uh and they're doing the sim a similar kind of thing with this yeah uh, but they're giving a little stuff a little more space to breathe i suppose and mm-hmm. going into some new ideas instead of just uh uh violent horror <laughs> <laughs> It feels, I don't know, I think mm-hmm. this is just as surreal, probably, as Ancien Andalou, but it feels more pointed, kind of. Like, I think that movie was so sort of purposefully just sort of like, here's a bunch of weird stuff. Figure it, like, what does it mean? We don't know. Like, it's just weird stuff. Like, <laughs> it means something. What does it mean to you? Like, what 
what thoughts does this stir in in you, audience member? Uh huh. Whereas this feels like there's more intent behind the imagery. Yeah. Where instead of and just being like, "What if ants came out of a hand?" That's crazy, right? It's like, well, let's have a bunch of bishops sitting on the rocks by the ocean, and it's like that feels more deliberate to me. It feels like they're making a point about like Catholicism or religion or something. I'm There's not sure exactly some, what point they're making. But. Some religious stuff going on. I, I, I guess we should say also, Borderline was a silent film, and this is a yeah. talkie, unlike Unchan Andalou, but mm-hmm. it's like barely a talking film. Uh, yeah. There are maybe like three or four scenes that have dialogue, and, and the rest have kind of almost a movie tone-esque sync sound kind mm-hmm. of situation. It does kind of feel like... Speaking of the sound in this movie, it does feel like a very early example of, like, creative sound design, which is something we haven't really seen in a lot of early talkies. Like, it's usually on-set sound or sound added in for specific, you know, specific sound effects of, like, this person slamming a door. We're putting in a door slamming. Whereas this movie is a little bit more, because it's such a, you know, uh, surrealist movie... There's a bit more sort of like creative subjective sound design stuff going on or even things of like there's some someone walks into their bedroom and there's a cow there with a cowbell on and the cow leaves the room. The cow leaves yeah. the room so the cow is off screen but we still hear the cowbell like from echoing from the next room. If which, not it, it kind of becomes it starts as diegetic, and then it just becomes this, like, ringing echoing that goes on forever and fills yeah. all of the space, which is But it's like, neat. we haven't seen a lot of that yet. We haven't, like, yeah. now that sound is a thing in movies, it is nice to see someone actually trying to use it in an interesting way, as opposed to just, what would this thing sound like if we filmed it? Yeah. It, yeah, it, it's, because this is so concerned with the kind of, uh, I don't know, visual imagery, uh, just kind of w- the, the what you get out of a certain visual image. They're using the sound occasionally to uh, give you some sort of sonic imagery to layer on mm-hmm. top of it. Uh, that, that cowbell, like, continues on over the next scene. Uh, and you're like, what's the juxtaposition yeah. here, you know? Yeah, there's, there's a bit with, like, lava bubbling. Yeah. Uh... And uh, they put the sound of a toilet flushing over it, which is great. Was that lava? I thought it was like goopy brown mud. And it I was might like, be okay, mud. That, that's I, funny, actually. <laughs> I thought I thought it might be lava. I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong. Uh, I know that um, it's black and Psycho white. So it's often, hard to tell. <laughs> Psycho often gets the credit for the first toilet flush shown on on screen mm-hmm. uh, because it was considered, you know, oh, why would you? It's too inappropriate to show that. But this. <laughs> has a toilet flushing off screen, but while it is showing you just burbling gooey mud. Yeah. Uh, so arguably uh, maybe even more. Yeah. Arguably more inappropriate. <laughs> yeah. It's, it was funny though. <laughs> I'm curious how true that is because I wonder if that's in an American film or if that goes for yeah, any film. Probably. probably just an American film. Yeah. They're the ones that had all the strict censorship. But maybe not. I don't know. Uh, this this movie starts with a uh, mini documentary on scorpions. Yeah, nineteen uh, thirties Planet Earth, <laughs> which is cool. Like it's cool to, to see old footage of scorpions. 
Yeah. I actually couldn't tell whether it was stop motion or real. It no, was they're, like... they're real scorpions. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's just kind of funny to like, what can we do in our movie where we're throwing a bunch of weird stuff in? Let's start mm-hmm. it with a documentary about Scorpos, you know? Yeah. Um, not a bad way to start a movie. I was immediately no. hooked. <laughs> this movie is very, feels very satirical, right? With all of the, the sort of surreal imagery in it. It feels very, if it's making any sort of point with it, it feels like it's it's very um, critical, I guess, of like aristocracy or the, the sort of bourgeoisie uh, society of Europe at the time. Yeah, there's a scene with like a dinner party with some rich people and they're just sitting there in all their fancy garb and there are like half a dozen flies on their faces. Yeah. I guess there's also like some kind of commentary on uh horniness. I don't know. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's the this word. Might, I was this might for. be the horniest movie we've watched for the show so far. <laughs> I don't know if the movie is though. I feel like it like I don't know, it's got right, like a yeah. weird I mean, relationship with it. It the characters probably are. But yeah, the movie is almost it's not necessarily judgmental against it, but it's almost like poking fun at them for how horny they are a little bit. I don't know. There's like a guy who like, he is just bumbling from thing to thing, not being <laughs> able to, uh, just, just losing track of himself over how horny he is. Yeah. Well, there's uh, a, there's a couple, right? There's a man and a woman who are both, it seems like all they want to do is make out on the ground in the dirt and people mm-hmm. keep like, preventing them from doing so people like the guards keep showing up and like pulling them away yeah the guards of society man or the church yeah but all those bishops uh, sitting by the ocean that turn to skeletons <laughs> there's just so much imagery in this movie you just yeah, shout it's, out stuff it's, and it's like it's kind of hard to like summarize this because it it doesn't really have a like its plot is just a bunch of weird stuff happens we could talk about, yeah, some of the specific imagery in it. Um, I think this movie reminded me of, actually, is, like, Monty Python sketches, just in terms <laughs> of how, how quickly it will move from one thing to another, and how, right. how like, and surreal it is. different. Right. Yeah. But even some of the, like, humor of it feels almost a little similar. There's a bit, right, where early on, when the guy is getting dragged away, there's a, a little dog, and he, like, takes the time to, like, break away from the people dragging him away to kick the dog. <laughs> And it's like yeah. a little tiny dog. I don't. I hope this was done safely. It might not have been, but it it is for as cruel as it is. It's the timing of it is very funny. And there's they put in a little yeah. sound effect, which sounds like a person making the sound of just like eh! as the dog like yeah. flies off screen. It feels like taking the dog from Anchorman. It's like such a ridiculous moment that I I have no idea why it's there, but. Uh, it it made me chuckle, and I I love dogs. I I hate to see anything bad happen to one, but it was the the comedic timing of it was good enough that it we'll, got me. We'll just try and remain ignorant as to whether this was a cannibal holocaust turtles situation. Yeah, I mean the fact that it was made in Europe in the, in 1930 makes me. He probably just kicked the dog. Like you know, I don't think that they were doing wire work at that point. There's um. There's a bit in sort of the first, maybe third of this movie that made me think it's kind of a parody of, like, City Symphony movies. Hmm. 
there's a bit that's like, oh, the, the hustle and bustle of, of modern life at the city. And it's like, are they kind of making fun of, like, you know, Berlin, Symphony of a Great City, <laughs> a little bit? <laughs> or just that kind of huh. genre? Because that was, like, right? That was a thing when this movie was getting made. So. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. After, after, so he kicks the dog early on. Later on, he does the same thing to a blind man. who's just a blind man walking down the street. And he, like, takes time away from whatever he was doing to go kick kick that guy well yeah the, the the guy is he's trying to take a taxi so this this horny guy is getting <laughs> we are introduced to him i think while he's getting like dragged away by some people like mm-hmm. seemingly being arrested or something yeah. he kicks the dog while he's being dri- dragged away he's able to escape from those people and then he takes a taxi to a rich fancy person's party uh but there's a blind guy that's standing in front of the taxi. So he just gets out and just kicks the blind guy onto the ground <laughs> and then gets in the taxi and drives away. It's very strange. Yeah. And that's, that's this whole movie, right? There's like a, there's a whole sort of like little section while they're at the party where uh, a guy shoots a child. Yeah. You know, there's the aforementioned horny stuff, like the man and the woman re reunite and they're in like the garden and like a hedge maze. And, uh, she like eats his fingers like off like there's a bit where like his hand is caressing her face and she like puts the fingers in her mouth and then we cut and there's like an amputee like a person without fingers has replaced the hand <laughs> although yeah, later I... on he has fingers again so it's you know it's it's not literal i guess as if, as if as if anything in this movie is literal none of it is uh, probably also later in that scene is the most famous thing from this movie, which is that woman uh, is kind of very aggressively sucking on the toes of a of a marble statue. Yeah, Tarantino loves uh, this picture. <laughs> this this uh, that scene was actually reproduced in the end of a David Bowie music video, oh, uh, huh. where he uh, he he does that right at the end of the video in, in a similar <laughs> fashion. David Bowie, big uh, fan of. Uh... Louis Buñuel movies. This movie ends with like a bunch of kind of dignitaries, uh, one of whom kind of looks like Jesus, who uh, are walking into a castle to participate in an orgy. That when they leave, like one of the women like tries to leave, and then the Jesus guy like kind of brings her back in and ostensibly murders her. Uh, and then he walks back out again, and the last scene of the movie is... When he walks out, his a... beard is gone, though. What's when he walks about? out, his beard is gone. That means something, some I just don't know what it is. <laughs> and uh, and then the, the last scene of the... The last image of the movie is a crucifix with, like, eight women's scalps, like, hanging from yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Like, there's, there's, there you go. There's clear <laughs> things that this movie is about, and I think those are sort of, like aristocracy religion and like sexual repression Mm -hmm. and the interplay between those all those things yeah what specific points it's trying to make about those i'm less clear on just because of how surreal the movie is but yeah i feel like it's it's broader sort of ideas are come across yeah through all of the the weirdness and you know the, the weirdness is part of it I think I'm probably more of a fan of Unshin Andalou. I think like it's shorter running yeah. time and focus on just 
extreme violence makes it feel a little more punchy. Yeah. Uh, even though yeah. there's like there's like more abstract imagery in this, but like you're more shocked by the abstract imagery in the yeah. Other no- movie. Nothing in this comes anywhere close to the the razor blade through the eyeball. Like yeah. I mean, that's one of the most like famous images in you know all of silent film, maybe all of film history. I don't know, but it's you know it's a very like visceral shocking thing to see even if it's a goat eyeball it's still just like ah it's yeah it you know it gets you and i feel like yeah this movie for all of its uh ambition doesn't it never quite reaches that level of just like instilling a feeling in the in the audience quite quite to such a degree that that uh that does another movie that deals with uh upper crust society which i'm sure you loved uh oh boy is, is animal crackers animal crackers which is more or less the same movie as the last marx brothers movie that we watched yeah yeah pretty much <laughs> i wrote down almost a remake of the coconuts like in terms of its uh its characters its plot it's it's remarkably similar and they were sort of like let's do another one of these change nothing change like the the bare basics of the premise uh and the character names and that's that's about it uh you are correct i did not enjoy this one (laughs) i'm i i was very excited having never seen any marx brothers movies to like all right we're gonna get to watch marx brothers stuff i'm sure that's gonna be great and Mm -hmm. i don't know so far it's like zero for two with the Marx Brothers for me. I do Maybe not... we should take a break until Duck Soup. <laughs> I think we should, yes. I think until 33, we should take a break from the Marx Brothers because I, I get what their shtick is and I don't enjoy it. That's funny. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, I enjoyed Coconuts. This is probably better than Coconuts. It's more... Marginally? It's, yeah, it's, like, less incompetently made. Uh, it's and still it's... kind of a mess, though. Like, there's still... like oh, yeah. There's... You know, we're talking about the sort of weirdo European avant-garde shit. This is a Hollywood movie. And there's just straight up bad edits in this. And like, well, it's, bad... a, it's a New York movie. It was filmed in New York or New Jersey I know, or but it's like, it's not well made. Like, it's <laughs> the no. the only real merits this movie has, I think, are its writing and its performances. Neither of which I particularly enjoyed anyway. But, um... <laughs> uh, yeah. So this is sort of another situation where uh the the marx brothers are all kind of playing similar characters to who they were before yeah uh except in a different setting rather than in florida uh i don't know where this is supposed to be I think it's this long island long island yeah it's at a, uh, a fancy house in long island and uh groucho marx is a is a an adventurer who uh has done some mildly racist things in africa (laughs) and uh and he's coming home to regale an upper crust party about his adventures in africa uh while at the same time there is being revealed a a one hundred thousand dollar painting that uh uh is the pride and joy of the owner of the house and uh and then there are some hijinks involved with crime related to the painting yeah like there were crime hijinks in the last much one as much well. like in the coconuts there are sort of like competing heist plans to steal yes. or replace the painting um like the coconuts this is also based on a stage musical 
that uh, shared a lot of the same cast. I mean, Mark's brothers and I think most of like the key cast members carried over from the stage version. And we had a key cast member who carried over from Coconuts too, which is Margaret Dumont, who mm. kind of plays the the rich woman who is sort of the the most immediate foil to Groucho's jokes, where she just kind of yeah. smiles and goes, "Oh, you," you know, <laughs> right to to the point where yeah, there's oh my god, there's one of them that is just it's so absurd that like I couldn't deal with it. <laughs> what are you talking about? There's a bit where a bunch of women show up and uh, Groucho playing uh, Captain Spaulding, which is a character name that has been reused in other, in other things. It was in uh, Devil's Rejects and also there's a character in M.A.S.H. named Captain Spaulding. And and it was initially named after a guy who was a real army captain who got busted for dealing cocaine to Hollywood people. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't know that. <laughs> There's a bit where a bunch of young ladies show up and Captain Spaulding says, I'm going to sow a couple of wild oats. Basically saying, I'm going to fuck all these ladies. <laughs> and, you know, the old upper crust people are like, oh, isn't the captain amusing? He's so charming. And it's like, is he? I don't know. <laughs> I don't see it that way. Right. Which I guess is the joke. But this this movie did have... It has some, you know, kind of edgy references to sex, I guess. Uh, some of which were uh, cut out when it was re-released kind of mm. deep into yeah. the uh, the code era. Yeah, this movie is it's very cheeky, right? It's very like, eh, check this out. You know, it's, it's uh, as is the including, Marx Brothers way. Yeah, including Groucho talking to the camera as he might talk to the audience on the stage version. Yeah, uh, but it isn't even like it's like that thing obviously works sometimes, right? Like everyone loves Flea, Flea Bag because it's great, and I know that it's almost like a joke now to have like characters talk to camera because it's like it's a very it's a very common thing to do, um, and I think it's not the easiest thing in the world to pull off, but when it's when it's done well, it really works, I think. I don't really think it's done well here. It feels like the sort of thing that would work on stage. Yeah. Where he then just turns the audience and he's like, check this out. But I don't think he does it quite as much in this one, but there is there is one part where, you know, he's doing one of his million jokes that he does and, and he's like <laughs> and he goes to the camera and he's like, They can't all be great, right? You know? <laughs> right. And I was like, Correct, sir. <laughs> One out of ten is not a great uh, ratio. I think a lot of this probably worked better on stage than it does in the movie. It feels very stagey, right? Like For sure. A lot of yeah. the sets feel like stage sets. A lot of the blocking feels very theater-inspired. It, it, yeah. it doesn't feel like a lot was done to sort of adapt this from the stage version, so much as just sort of like, we're going to film it with cameras and then yeah. release it to people. It's pretty restricted in terms of loca- like number of locations, too. Like, mm-hmm. They didn't do anything to make it, you know, take advantage of it being a movie. It was probably just made pretty quickly yeah. and cheaply. The, uh, the performances feel very stagey, which I think with sort of the, the more, like, the Marx Brothers themselves, I think, kind of can get away with it because they're playing such big, broad, comedic characters. But I feel like the the supporting cast that are all ostensibly playing normal people, which is another thing in this movie where like everyone else in the movie is just acts like a person, 
And then the Marx Brothers characters just act like maniacs, and no one even seems to really acknowledge this. <laughs> They're just kind of annoyed at them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I don't think it works. Like, I I don't... Maybe there's a some disconnect between the stage version and the film version, and that's that's what is making this feel so stilted and not very funny to me. I might just not like the Marx Brothers shtick i don't know because i know doesn't it feel a little blasphemous to say (laughs) two movies in i'm like i don't like these guys i don't think they're funny like there there are jokes that work like occasionally i i got a couple laughs out of this movie but i i could count on one hand the amount of times i i actually laughed (laughs) during this you know almost two hour long motion picture and a lot of those are like physical comedy gags are things that would have worked in a silent movie. I will say that uh, Harpo Harpo's physical comedy uh, is a little bit helped by his like horn honking, uh, <laughs> which which you can't have in a silent movie. Uh, but that that horn really that that <laughs> kind of yeah. adds a lot. <laughs> it's a, it's a very funny sound. So you throw that in front of anything, and it it helps. I think maybe the single funniest joke in this for me was. Towards the very end of the movie, all the silverware falling out of Harpo's coat that he's presumably been stealing over the course of the entire movie. And it just, it's just like a steady stream of silverware just like falling out of his coat sleeve. And it goes on and on and on and on. And it's like how, you know, it's more silverware than anyone could ever fit in any garment of clothing. It's just like this absurd cartoonish amount of silverware falling out. And that's, it's funny. It's, I think, similar... There was a similar joke, I think, in The Coconuts where, like, he runs off screen he comes back with, like, way too many tools to try to break someone out of jail. And then he has the key anyway. So it's like, there's there's some good, like, prop comedy that I enjoyed. I mean, I I like... I like some of Groucho's, like, stupid lines, which... Some of uh, them work. I mean, they... A lot of them are, like... They're kind of funny, but they're also just groan-inducing, right? They're so, like, (laughs) dad joke pun things. We tried to remove the tusks, but they were embedded in so firmly we couldn't budge them. Of course, in Alabama, the Tuscaloosa. But that's entirely irrelevant to what I was talking about. Uh, Uh, I mean, I wrote down a couple (laughs) jokes that I enjoyed. Um, Oh, there's another physical comedy thing is someone writes a check, um, and they drop it, and it literally bounces off the floor. Yeah, that's, is that's, the check good? good? And then he drops it on the ground. <laughs> and it, it bounces, literally. There's a bit where uh, I think Harpo sits on someone's lap while they're playing bridge. And uh, he says, oh, he thought it was contact bridge, which is... <laughs> that, was, that was good. That's that's a good joke. A couple a couple Groucho bits. Uh, I shot an elephant in my pajamas. Have I gotten my pajamas? I don't know. Like, you know, just wordplay stuff. It's like he does about 20 of these in every scene. And so naturally, yeah. like, a few of them land. A few of them are quite good. But it's... <laughs> you gotta sit through a lot of them to get to the good ones, I feel like. I hope as the as they keep making movies, they refine this stuff. And by the time we get to Duck Soup, it's like their hit rate is a little higher. Right. This movie, again, has, like, a, a totally random... Inter- not random, but it's, like, a scene where it's just, like, now Harpo plays the harp for like four yeah. minutes 
<laughs> yeah, I was when that happened. I was like, okay, good. I can stop paying attention for a little yeah, while. Yeah, it's like oh, okay, I can you know, I can I can microwave my soup or whatever. Yeah, I think this movie has pretty much all of the same problems as the coconuts. Yeah, the audio is a little bit better. A little bit, but it's still even that kind of reminded me of the bit in uh, Singing in the Rain with the pearls. There's nothing quite that bad. Yeah, but I've just. Yeah, just things that don't sound well or sort of unrefined uh, onset sound that is I think drowned out by some other noises or something. In general, last year, uh, the sound was kind of universally poorly recorded. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in pretty much all of the movies this year, it has been decent to good sound yeah. recording. I think just to... to um go backwards a little bit. I think a reason why I think a lot of the sound works in Lodge d'Or is because I'm pretty sure most, if not all of it was not sync sound in terms of like, it's not on set audio. They, mm-hmm. I don't think they were recording sound while they were shooting. It lets you put the camera in more places and allows the performances to be a little looser and then allows the actual sound design to also be a, a bit looser and more, expressionistic and whatever so i i think you know so many of the problems of these early sound movies are the the limitations of trying to record picture and sound simultaneously and when you when you don't try to do that when you just spaghetti western style just record all the audio afterwards um i think it it allows for a sort of a freer uh filmmaking style uh but hey if you lock everything off on a stagey set then it Shouldn't matter anyway, even though it does in Animal Crackers. Yeah. Animal Crackers, kind of a musical. I mean, it is a musical. There's like full on like stage musical numbers in it. Yeah. Has a bit of a Gilbert and Sullivan vibe to some of it. Yeah. I'm uh, mostly I'm familiar with Gilbert and Sullivan, which which are their their big ones. The one that Sideshow Bob sings. Oh, okay. <laughs> HMS Pinafore. Yeah. Yeah. Which I'm sure we'll probably get to. It's not, is there a film version of that? Probably. Uh, probably. Maybe we'll get to the Simpsons episode. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, another movie that has sort of, uh, musical performance in it is mm-hmm. Morocco, directed by Joseph von Sternberg and starring Melina Dietrich. Yes. Who are both pretty famous at this point, or sort of like the 1930s are like the start of their famous run that they had as director yeah. and star. Yeah, I think Marlena Dietrich was still pretty new at this point. Yeah. They had uh, done one film for Ufa in Germany called The Blue Angel, which was their first collaboration, which I also watched, but you didn't. Um, and I don't know if I have a lot to say about it. I didn't take any notes because I watched it yesterday just because like, I want to I want to see it. Here. <laughs> no, I just like I, that was just me watching too many things. Uh, also stars Gary Cooper. Yeah, uh, young Gary Cooper. Famous, famous actor. Who was in Wings, but he's like one of the leads in this. Yeah, and he's yeah went on to make a lot of really big stuff. Uh, yeah. Got, got some best actor wins yeah. and all that. But yeah, uh, this is a movie that is kind of just um, concerning a lot of... It's a love triangle, of course. Yeah. Because everything is. Classic old I, movie plot. I cannot... 
get over the fact how every single movie is a love triangle. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 It has a lot more, uh, maybe kind of silent longing than mm-hmm. a lot of other movies of its ilk. Uh, a lot of like people just missing each other in terms of like uh, being on board with the same stuff at the same time. And then yeah. like, yeah. That kind of thing's just getting awkward. <laughs> yeah. It's a better written love triangle than I think we're used to seeing. Right. And that I almost feel like there's there's less of a clear, like, like good choice, bad choice in terms of, like, the love triangle. You know, right. it's, it, it's like there's... Melanie Dietrich is a cabaret singer in Morocco. And there are two men that she is has a relationship with. One of whom is Gary Cooper, who is... A soldier in the French Foreign Legion. Um, he's got big uh, Rick O'Connell from The Mummy vibes, which like I wouldn't be surprised if this movie is like where that element of that character comes from. Huh. And he's the sort of like rough and tumble, more kind of traditionally masculine, physical presence sort of character. And then there is uh, who's the other? What's the other guy's name? Uh, La Bessière. La Bessière, who is a much more of a sort of like wealthy tuxedo wearing uh fancy pants sort of man with his waxed mustache and his and his nice cocktails and uh and glamorous lifestyle he's played by uh adolphe manjou who was in the woman of paris yeah well the movie doesn't necessarily judge either of those characters as like one isn't a sort of clear hero or villain it's sort of like yeah Melanie truck's character is sort of like split between these two dudes but it's I feel like in, in a lot of these love triangle movies, there's like one of these guys is clearly a huge asshole. And one of them is a saintly cowboy who like rescues children <laughs> from the well, you know? Yeah. Who will I pick? <laughs> and this is actually like, you know, it, it makes sense why her character might have second thoughts about being with either one or like, because both all three characters feel flawed and human in their own ways. Mm-hmm. Which is, I think, a, a sort of a... a Joseph von Sternberg's staple um, is he he likes sort of complicated human uh, characters and relationships. There's a lot of things in this movie that I either in sort of vague terms or in like very specific terms I see in more modern stuff. The really obvious one is so we just watched Babylon for our 1920s decade review episode. Mm -hmm. And there is a moment in that movie that is like lifted from this in the most it is like shot for shot the blocking is the same what, and it's probably the most about? famous part of this movie it's when Elena Dietrich is doing her big song in oh, wearing a tu- right. wearing a tuxedo yeah Marlene Dietrich looks better in tuxedo than I will ever look in any clothing <laughs> Marlene Dietrich is the coolest just throwing that out there uh if she wasn't dead I would marry her um, <laughs> but there's right there's the bit in Babylon where Lady Fay, who's the sort of more of an anime Wong archetype, is dressed yeah. in tuxedo and does this uh, risque song, and then uh, kisses a woman in the audience who then hides her face because she's embarrassed, which is just a thing that happens in this movie. Like it is just the blocking of it is like identical. Melanie Dietrich's body language and just general the way that she acts while she's performing, like performing the song or multiple mm-hmm. songs in this movie reminded me also of like Jessica Rabbit a little bit, which I realize Jessica Rabbit is 
a, a composite of like every 1930s or 40s like singer and or actress. Yeah. But there's 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 certainly some Marlene Dietrich in there. Yeah, it's a good scene. It also like I guess notably in the scene she uh you know, she's in a tuxedo and she uh is kind of like playing a male role in a way and she kisses a woman uh who's in the audience. And I think that was kind of a uh considered a bit much later later on uh, mm-hmm. in the Hayes code but yeah. um yeah would uh, not have yeah. happened in 1935 no one of several examples of this movie having sort of a bit more risqueness to it there's a great line in the beginning of the movie where uh Gary Cooper is sees a woman who holds up her fingers to say like come to my apartment tonight at this time and he holds up his fingers to confirm and his like officer or whatever comes over and says, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing with those fingers? And he says, nothing. Yet. <laughs> yeah, I was pretty surprised by that line, too. Yeah. That's a good example of, like, what pre-code movies are like. It's like, they they go a bit harder than what I think the general, what I feel like most people tend to think of in 1930s movies, which are fairly sort of staid and classy. There's this nice chunk of time where they're they're less class, not that less classy, but they're just like they're allowed it's, to I mean, actually be about things. Movie. It's a very yeah. classy movie. There's a lot of tuxedos in it. Yeah, I mean the plot of this movie, I don't think is that interesting. Like I feel like we've talked about it enough. Love triangle, <laughs> love triangle. But like it's a little bit better than normal. Maybe I don't know. I feel like I could talk about Melina Dietrich till the cows come home, just because I think she's very cool and uh, uh, attractive to look at. Not just like, but it's like not her, her face. It's like she has a presence that I feel like is less. There's definitely been people in the 20s that had a similar sort of, right? There's like the vamp archetype. Yeah. She's not a vamp though. No. I feel like Melanie Dietrich is a femme fatale, which is a, an evolution of the vamp. No, and I guess not in this. Um, In some of her other movies, maybe a bit more so. Have you seen so other than Blue Angel? Have you seen any? Of I've her seen other Shanghai Express also, which is from thirty two. I think. I feel like yeah, her like archetype feels like a much more like nineteen thirties archetype than a nineteen twenties one. I feel like most leading ladies in Hollywood movies in the twenties were more like. I think a good example is um, Clara Bow. Like Clara Bow, even when she's being like overtly sexual, is sort of in. She's just, she's, like, cute and bubbly, and she's like, oh, hey, he, he, I don't know, yeah. there's a bit of, it's like... It's almost, like, Mary Pickford, like, like, kittiness, too. Yeah, there's, like, a little bit of infantilization, there's, like, a little bit of just, like, innocence to it, of, like, whereas I feel like Melanie Dietrich is showing up, and it's like, I'm not innocent, I know what's up, get out of my way, <laughs> like, yeah, that's not necessarily a new thing, in terms of, there's been characters like that in 1910s movies that we watched. But uh, much like the transition from 1910s, 1920s, like we talked about how there was like a clear shift, like a noticeable shift in the quality of movies and just like what types of movies were being made. I think there's less of that from the 20s to the 30s, between 29 and 30. But I still am noticing, I'm picking up things like that. And I think this movie in particular has a lot of it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, this movie shot outside a lot of the time, which is just that is feels like a, a big step up from something like uh, Animal Crackers, which is like so stage bound, so sort of uh, locked off in its in its camera and its visual style. Whereas this is like mm-hmm. by no means doing anything crazy, but like the camera moves, they go outside. Yeah. And so, yeah, it feels like a much more a much more modern movie. Yeah, it's it's eminently watchable. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's I think a lot of the early sound stuff we watched was like, oh, this is rough. Whereas this is like, no, this feels like a movie. Yeah, I think especially these movies that we're going to talk on the back half of the episode about uh, they are movies that don't feel so incompetently made sound wise and are actually just like. Yeah, good movies. <laughs> yeah. I could just say facts that I learned, but I don't know. That might not be the most I mean, interesting we'll probably be watching more Dietrich Sternberg movies in the next couple of years, maybe? So Maybe. This is one of the more... I mean, this... Like, Blue Angel is the first, and it's the only German one. Um, That one feels very German, whereas this feels much more Hollywood. Mm-hmm. But, I don't know. They, they seemed like an interesting two people, and they worked together... A lot during this short time period. Joseph von Sternberg was apparently very controlling. Like, possibly bordering on abusive. But Marlon Dietrich never had anything bad to say about him. And was like, no, that's like, that's how we work. Like, that's like what I'm, that's what I'm showing up for. Uh, You mean as a director? Yeah, like as a, but like with her specifically. Like he would be like super, super controlling in terms of like trying to craft her performance. And there's even, it's apparently sort of a thing where like people don't even know who to credit more for like the movie's success because it's like they're such a sort of like close collaboration they were both married but both had a semi-romantic relationship during the making of the movies Lonnie Dietrich had a, a pretty like open marriage her whole life so she had like many affairs with men and women just all over the place I think like multiple during the making of this movie I think Gary Cooper was having an affair with someone else, but then they also might have hooked up during the making of this. Also, it's you know, reading about the people who made this movie, I'm like, oh, they were all sleeping together all the time. That was just <laughs> their thing. It was very, it was very open. It was very loose. There's right. another good, movie we talked about recently that was like that. Right? I think it was Wings, right? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's also right. <laughs> involving Gary Cooper. Gary Cooper was just you know having a grand old time on all these movie sets. <laughs> I like the end of this movie. It's just like good filmmaking, right? There's so this movie ends with Amy Jolly. Amy Jolly. So Amy Jolly, all her hemming and hawing, eventually uh, Gary Cooper's going off into the desert to fight with the Legion, and he's you know disappearing over the horizon, and she finally decides to run after him into the desert, and as she's running, she takes off her heels and like leaves him behind in the sand. Which is just, it's very obvious, but it's a nice little kind of visual metaphor for like, oh, she's living behind her old fancy rich person life mm-hmm. with the fancy rich man to go live in the desert with a soldier who might die at any point. And, you know, it's like the last shot is like her disappearing over the horizon. And then the Paramount logo fades up over the sound of just like the howling wind, mm-hmm. which is like, I don't know, a, a, another nice use of like sound design it's not doing anything that crazy with it but it's still it's like using sound in a way that isn't just 
here was a thing happening, what sound would it make? Right. And this yeah. would, I feel like this would normally be like a kind of swelling music over the end. Yeah, no. It's a kind uh, of a kind of a dour note to end on because it's like she's running after the man that she's presumably in love with, which is like a very romantic way to end a movie. But it feels like almost graduate the graduate like where it's this thing of like, is this a happy ending? I can't tell. Like huh. there's an element of just kind of the ominousness to it that is like this might not work out still. Which I mean, you know, they kind haven't. Of about you know, that's the thing is through the whole movie they haven't really had like a fantastic back and forth you know no uh, it's like they're both kind of like wounded people running from a, a dark past which in both cases is unspecified so it's like you get that they have a kind of they can relate to each other in a way that they can't relate to other people um but it's still like it doesn't necessarily feel like they have like a great happy life after this movie you know yeah <laughs> i think that hmm. i thought of so this is also in combination with Shanghai Express, which is a pretty similar movie to this in a lot of ways. Casablanca feels like a sort of post-Von Sternberg movie with its sort of like central sort of exotic location in quotes, like you know, <laughs> two Europeans. And it's sort of like transient characters who are like either running from something or running to something or, you know, there's doomed romance, there's regret, there's like criminal shadiness going on um like this movie feels in addition to being set in morocco feels uh very casablanca like it's a sort of a proto casablanca hmm. play it again baby <laughs> that famous line from casablanca play it again baby <laughs> another movie that uh uh pushes the limits of the the production code the pre-code acceptability another, another movie that has a lot of sort of for the time risque stuff in it yeah hell's angels directed hell's by angels. howard hughes that old yes. crazy man howard hughes made a movie <laughs> that he paid for with his drill bit money that his parents gave him when they died show me all the blueprints <laughs> show me all the blueprints uh he had not made blueprints yet by this point i had seen this movie before because i saw the uh Martin Scorsese movie The Aviator when it came out and I was like I want to see that movie that they're making in it and so I saw uh, this movie when I was like 15 maybe mm-hmm. had you seen this before? no I have not Um, I think I remembered I remember not loving it but just thinking like this is an interesting artifact of mm-hmm. an, of its time and I think that more or less holds true rewatching it I don't necessarily think this movie is great there's good stuff in it, but ultimately yeah. it has it has such a like I don't want to say nihilism, but a, like a misanthropy to it. Like it's so huh. the characters are so miserable, and it ends on such a note of just sort of like <laughs> everything sucks. I think, yeah. I mean, this movie also like the the characters are miserable, but they're also like douchebags. You know, yeah, right? They're miserable, like... and they're also just like bad people. um or they're dumb or some combination of the two right so yeah howard hughes had not made movies before this he was a rich texan whose uh family made a fortune in drill bits and then died and then he had uh, a lot of money and he and he decided i'm gonna make an airplane picture because i saw wings 
And I think that would be fun to do. This is a very, yeah, very post-Wings film. Yeah, this is, for sure. This is more or less like, I want to make Wings also. <laughs> like, I do think this movie is significant in, like, film history and that it's, like, one really rich guy self-financed this movie himself, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, this was made outside of the studios. Yeah, I think it was released by United Artists, but it was, mm-hmm. like, he paid for it himself, including holding up production to find clouds that looked like boobs, which is a real thing that he did. <laughs> Wait, what? That's in The Aviator also, but I, I tried to, like, find uh, more documentation on it. There's not a lot. I couldn't find a lot, but I also... That doesn't strike me as something that Scorsese would make up. That's too weird of a detail to just throw in there. That's interesting. I don't... Yeah, I didn't... I've. It's been a long time since I've seen The Aviator, so I don't remember that. And I don't remember any boob clouds in this movie. <laughs> I think this movie is also significant in that... So... The Jazzinger came out, I think, like a few weeks before they started shooting. And this mm-hmm. movie was intended to be a silent movie originally. But then uh, I think about a year and a half in, Howard Hughes was like, hey, people want sound in their movies. Let's reshoot most of this movie to have sound in it. <laughs> Which another <laughs> another reason why this movie had a massive budget for the time, yeah. I guess. Like this movie, I think, cost in $1930 dollars. It cost um, about $2.8 million, which it only made back $2.5 million. So adjusted, adjusted for inflation, that's about $51 million, approximately, in today's money. Which, which is, is a pretty is, modest budget now. Right, that's, that's the... Bu- I was trying to find, like, a, what's a funny example of a movie that costs about $51 million? And it's like, that's the budget of A Man Called Otto, which is not... <laughs> an expensive or like extravagant film at all it's just like tom hanks is old and grumpy <laughs> whereas this was like the most extravagant expensive movie it wasn't the most expensive movie ever made when it came out but it was like it kind was of built up them. as as this like crazy big budget thing there there are a couple there are a couple parts of this movie where i'm like oh that's where the money went you know but yeah, yeah. all of them involving airplanes <laughs> yeah i think most of that though uh was just because they had to shoot it twice. Right, uh, yeah. It doesn't necessarily scream expensive movie at all right. moments. Yeah. I think it's fairly obvious which scenes were reshot. Because uh, even though there's sound throughout the whole thing, there's definitely scenes that are clearly shot silent and then had dialogue edited in afterwards or sound edited in afterwards. The fact that they had to reshoot so much of it led to... So <laughs> Howard Hughes didn't even wasn't going to direct this originally. He was just going to produce it. And then he hired two different directors that both either quit or were fired. Um, and eventually he was like, fine, I'll just direct it myself. And then he directed it up until the switch to sound. And then the sound, the sync sound segments were directed by uh, James Whale, mm-hmm. who we'll talk about next episode for Frankenstein. Yep. His most famous movie. So it's like, this movie is basically co-directed by James Whale, even though he has a, a weird credit. I think it's like, it's like sound scenes are staged by James Whale. I think it's something like what the credit is in the movie. Huh. It also led to one of the more famous things about this movie is that uh, it's like, Jean, not Gina Hollow's first movie, but it's like her first big role. And she wasn't originally in it. Originally, Greta Nielsen, who's Norwegian, played that 
role. But since they were switching to sound, it's like, oh, she has a Norwegian accent. It doesn't make sense for her to play this, like, upper-crust British woman. Never mind the fact that Jean Harlow's from Kansas City. Doesn't sound British at all, but whatever. So this movie, I think, does is an interesting example of this, like, intermediate period where movies are still adjusting to sound. A lot, Yeah, a lot of this movie is effectively silent. There's even intertitles in it. I mean, I think the intertitles are used in an interesting way, though. Like, right, they're, because they're used to translate German dialogue. Yeah, yeah. So they're basically subtitles, but it's taken up the whole screen. Yeah, they don't know what subtitles are yet. So two sort of filmmaking terms that I'm sure you're familiar with that I kind of want to bring up because I don't really know. Both are sort of like vague in their origins, which is kind of interesting on its own. Right? So like a lot of this movie is shot silent with sound added afterwards. Mm -hmm. Now when stuff is shot silent, like when stuff is like, we're filming a scene, but we're not going to record sound for it. It's usually marked MOS on the slate. I don't know that. (laughs) MOS, no one really knows what it stands for because there's multiple conflicting origin stories for it. Like ADR. (laughs) Right. ADR is the next thing that I want to bring up because they clearly ADR'd stuff in this movie. But MOS is stands for either motor-only shot, meaning they're only using a motor for the camera, not for the sound recording equipment, which is much less interesting than the other origin for it, which is probably made up, which is that some German director in Hollywood, it could have probably been von Stroheim or Fritz Lang or Ernst Lubitsch, we don't know, asked for a scene to be shot mit-out sound, and the guy, you know, assistant camera, whoever, wrote MOS on the slate kind of as a joke, making fun of the fact that he said mit out sound because he was German and then it stuck. And we still say that now, <laughs> which I think is a funnier story naturally. And that's what I choose to believe is the origin of the acronym MOS. But either way, I th- that probably originated around this time period when they were switching to sound and needed to mark which scenes would be shot with recorded audio and which ones wouldn't be. ADR is a similar thing where there's so many conflicting you know things that it stands for additional dialogue recording automated dialogue replacement i think is kind of the most common one maybe but it's just the process of recording dialogue after a scene has already been filmed and dubbing it or syncing it after the fact i've talked way too much about acronyms general things about this movie it's uh two brothers one who is uh, a good old boy, British, uh, stiff upper lip, uh, traditional guy who is sucks. And another <laughs> one who is a coward who also sucks. Yeah. There's, there's the straight laced dumb one and the cowardly horny one. Um, those are our two lead characters, Roy and Monty respectively. And we meet them in Germany before the war. They're living abroad in Germany, having a grand old time drinking beer. And, you know, Monty is uh, philandering and making out with lots of ladies, including the wife of a German count who challenges him to a duel. And Monty, being a coward, just goes back to England immediately. And is like, I'm not dueling anybody. Which then Roy decides to... His brother Roy is like, don't be an ass. Yeah. <laughs> so Roy goes in his place to the duel and loses, but lives. They duel with pistols. He gets shot, but is in the arm, so he's fine. It's in the shoulder. This is nothing. Who cares? (laughs) 
they go they both go back to England and war were declared. Their friend Carl, uh, who's German, gets conscripted to go fight for Germany. They're all they're all college buddies in yeah. at Oxford and, uh, before uh, the war. Roy being a good old boy volunteers for the Royal Flying Corps, and Monty being a horny coward uh, sees a sign that says "Enlist in the RFC and get a kiss." <laughs> and so he immediately just kisses the lady, and they're like, "Well, you're in the Royal Flying Corps now. You got a kiss." And he's like, "What? Me? No, <laughs> I didn't actually mean that. That was just a joke, right?" Yeah, I just wanted just a kiss a from a kiss. lady. And throughout this sort of opening, right there's off screen. There's this woman, Helen, who's Roy. Roy's been dating, and he's like, "Oh, Monty, you gotta settle down and find yourself a nice gal like Helen." And then we meet Helen played by Jean Arlo. And she's like the, like the least, <laughs> you know, like... The, the least traditional kind of person. Yeah, yeah she's uh, the most, like, flirtatious. What's what's another... I'm trying to think of a better word than loose, because that feels derogatory. <laughs> That's... I mean, this movie is kind of derogatory. This movie is kind of... One of the almost, like, thesis ideas of this movie is, like, don't trust women. They'll betray you. Yeah, yeah, true. I mean, I feel like... um when I initially started watching this movie and realized that both of the main characters are douchebags, I was like, okay, so this is like, when I was realizing that this was more of a dumb action movie than Wings, <laughs> right? Right. Like, I was like, oh, it's the Michael Bay version of Wings. And I was like, you know, maybe that's not fair right. to Michael Bay. Like, he he's always the, ex- like, the explosion guy. And I wrote, the Roland Emmerich. And then right afterward, the, the two brothers are just being total douchebags. And I'm like, okay, it's the Michael no, Bay Michael version Bay. of Wings. <laughs> right, because Michael Bay has a bit of that, like, nihilistic, like, humanity is awful subtext to a lot of his movies. But yeah, this is like a broy action movie. <laughs> it is, yeah. And it's one of the sort of points it seemingly is trying to make is that like don't care about women because they will only betray you by sleeping with someone else, which is Everybody a very betray ha- me. It's a very Howard Hughesy stance to take, I feel like. <laughs> it is wild how the movie never takes any effort to like the characters never learn anything besides just like, oh yeah, women are untrustworthy. There's a version of this where I think Roy would still get betrayed by Helen and learn that like, oh yeah, you can't just like idealize people and just project all, everything you want someone to be onto a person. There's That's also another version of this where Monty gets over his cowardice and becomes a hero. Right, like, that's kind of where you'd expect it to go, is Monty sort of, like, learns not to treat women as disposable objects, and actually, like, gets his heart broken or sort of learns to care about somebody, um, and also overcomes his cowardice, which is established early on. But it's this movie is a very no-one-learns-anything movie, <laughs> and, like, the people they are in the opening scene are the people that they are in at the end of the movie, which is <laughs> bad, shitty people. <laughs> So they join the Air Force. Uh, It uh, has a bit of a kind of training sequence a la Wings, but it really Mm -hmm. just kind of like jumps right into them being airplane guys really quick. Mm -hmm. If this is a Bay movie, like Wings is more of a Spielberg movie. Right. And then, yeah, this did not... I watched this after I watched All Quiet on the Western Front. And... Mm. Uh, <laughs> big difference it, uh, 
Yeah. You know, All Quiet, we'll talk about it in a second, but All Quiet on the Western Front is a ver- a movie that's just all about the abject horror of war and just how traumatizing and horrific it is. And this movie is like, let's go kill some baddies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's very... It's, uh, it's pulpy, this movie. It's very pulpy, for sure. And I think when it gets into the flying scenes, you can really see where Howard Hughes's heart was at in terms of why he wanted to make this movie, which is he just wanted to film airplanes flying around. Let's be yeah. honest. That was his, that's his whole deal. He just wanted that's to kill a couple thing. stunt guys. <laughs> yeah. I think three stunt pilots died making this movie. Yeah. Though the way, I mean, I think only one of them can be blamed on the production of the movie itself. And the other two were just like, they were doing a normal thing and then died. Yeah. I mean, there's a story I saw multiple places where there was a stunt that, uh, one of the, the sort of lead stunt pilots refused to do. He was like, this is way too dangerous. And Howard Hughes was like, I'll do it myself. And so he got in the plane and he did it and he crashed and fractured his skull. Uh, but the, I guess they got the shot. <laughs> the in-air stunt work, I also thought was maybe even better done in Wings, though. I think, like, this movie has a scene with, like, a million airplanes all like mm. crisscrossing each other at once which is cool but i think that just like the editing and composition in, yeah. in the aerial scenes mm-hmm. and wings is better i think the flying scenes in this occasionally feel a little bit more kind of immediate or a little bit more like there's a sense of danger to them probably because they are incredibly dangerous what is being filmed right. and how they're being filmed the sound um, helps too yeah there's there's a couple times where like there's a camera mounted like in the cockpit almost looking at the pilot's face and you can see the background behind them like just going crazy as they're like doing loops or whatever and it's yeah it puts you in the cockpit of a plane i think pretty well wings yeah. also did this but i think this movie is even a little bit more kind of intense in its in its flying scenes maybe yeah there are a lot of i mean really good parts of the dogfight like the big dogfight toward the end mm-hmm. of the movie where it'll just zoom into individual uh, Kaiser soldiers who are mm-hmm. dying. And uh, so they all die in like a kind of like unique way. Like, you know, one guy like, you know, gets shot and then blood comes out of his mouth. But like the the way that each of those shots kind of ends is the person collapsing and then the plane losing control and the the skyline just spiraling out yeah. behind them, which is really cool. Which you can see because of all the clouds in the background. Yes. So there's there's a you've seen the Aviator, right? You know you know the the I there's a whole don't remember anything like, about the There's the like aviator. ten whole minutes in the Aviator where Howard Hughes is like shutting down production because he can't find clouds because it's like the airplanes look fake because there's no nothing behind them to show relative motion. And then I mean, he, fair. he he asks Ian Holm the meteorologist to find him clouds that look like giant breasts full of milk. Um, and he's like, I'll try, but that can't be guaranteed on any occasion. But eventually he finds his clouds and they film the whole thing and it's great. But so watching this movie, I was just like, Hey, there are those clouds. <laughs> you know, it, it, it does help give a sense of like speed and sort of to ground where the planes are relative to each other. This movie has one scene that is shot in color. Yes. It was shot in multicolor, which is not Technicolor. It's a different process, but I think it was printed by Technicolor. Mm-hmm. Because they were the only ones that had the, the, the means. Scale. To, yeah. yeah. 
and it looks pretty good for a two color technicolor thing yeah i mean there's definitely you can get you can get ahead with two color two strip technicolor yeah. uh it's just that some things look abnormally red or green but yeah. uh at least white skin tones look pretty good it mm-hmm. had me kind of wondering like how other skin tones would look with two strip technicolor because it seems like it was probably designed more to accommodate white skin tones but uh yeah it's like a big party scene kind of where yeah. you're initially finding out that helen is a is a bit more of a a bit loose... more of a party animal <laughs> yeah. yeah so yeah the helen character i find kind of fascinating just because of the movie seems to kind of hate her but at the same time want you to kind of ogle her it's very this movie strikes me as just a sexist movie in terms of <laughs> Helen sort of seems to represent women in general because right. I think the only other women that we ever see are like French prostitutes. Yes. Yeah. And or at Helen least like is... brainless, brainless uh, uh, people who are just like fawning over the military yeah. guys. Yeah. And it's like, so Roy is sort of like hyping up Helen to Monty as this like good girl that she's that he's fan. It's like, oh, she's so, you know, pure and and behaves herself so well. And then we're introduced to her of her like running out from behind a bush, clearly having made out with a different soldier who's just like runs off in a different direction. And they're both just like hastily adjusting their clothing and like wiping their face. And then upon meeting Monty, Helen is immediately just like making eyes at him the whole time. And at the party, she's like, hey, why don't, why don't you drive me home? And he's like, oh, I guess so. And they get home and like they just immediately sleep together upon leaving the party. And then Monty is then also immediately like, how dare you cheat on my brother, you harlot? And it's like, <laughs> dude, it was with you, you doofus. <laughs> Crazy. And that's yeah. what I mean. Like, I don't this movie's like moral stance seems very confused. And yeah, I mean, even about the war, too, right? Like it is kind of there are some there are some parts that acknowledge that, like, uh, you know, Monty is talking about it being when he's thinking of defecting uh, about it being a politician's war. uh, And like, what do I need to die for all of this just political alliances and all this kind of thing, which is not untrue about World War One. It really is just like a. Like, there's, there isn't much of a reason for it happening. Uh, but, uh, and then there's a scene toward the beginning, before Monty signs up, uh, it gets duped into signing up by by a siren, uh, is, uh, there's <laughs> by a... By a siren with a sign saying, if you sign up, we will kiss you. Yeah. <laughs> and, he, and he's just like, well, I guess I have to sign up now. He's like, hubba hubba, not... boyo yoing. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but he 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 read the sign, but he oh, he only saw the word kiss. He didn't see the enlist part. <laughs> oh yeah, it's like uh, it's like the um, the Simpsons bit where Bart's running for class president. and He makes a sign that yeah. says "sex." Now that I have your attention, vote for Bart. Yeah, uh, but <laughs> that's how they got people in World War One. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, before that, toward the beginning of the movie, there's a scene of a communist or anarchist. Uh, who? Yeah, or just, I think it's or an just, anarchist, right? Or just like a pacifist, like someone, someone in the audience calls him an anarchist, but like mm. he is at least some kind of pacifist. Where uh, he is saying, "All this misery in the world has been caused by and for capitalism. 
Why should we participate in this war? For capitalism? You will die for capitalism. Your sons will die for capitalism. Down with capitalism. Down with war. <laughs> and then this guy in the this guy like snidely in the in the corner goes, Down with the anarchist. And then uh, and then the whole crowd just jumps on him and beats him <laughs> up. Uh but like, you know, he's not wrong. <laughs> yeah. And uh and in in certain ways, neither is Monty toward the the end of the movie. But then also, the movie like clearly judges him for uh, being a coward, which for, he is. Yeah, yeah, for for you know not wanting to participate in his like national duty, and uh, it thinks that the war is a good thing, and it does some like you know. By this point, we already had D. W. Griffith making a movie apologizing to the Germans about how he portrayed them during World War One, And this movie just has some cartoonish, mustache-twirling Germans. Oh, yeah. In it. Yeah. Which, I mean, probably at the time was a bit more of just like, I don't know, a bit more propagandistic. But like, looking back on it, I don't know, it's just like a bunch of World War One Germans with monocles and big mustaches who are like, you know, piloting zeppelins and and you know challenging people to duels, and it's I don't know. It, I think it's fun. <laughs> it's fun. It's fun. Certainly. I mean, I don't think there's you know, I don't think it's like necessarily offensive to make fun of Germans in that way. Although it was like you know between World War One and World War Two when they were like, okay, we're not actually mad at Germans right now. You know, yeah. they are just like yeah, cartoonish villains. Uh, and I do want to talk about also. The Zeppelin scene. We got to talk um, about the Zeppelin scene. That's true. <laughs> Which I imagine they shot it with a real Zeppelin, or at least if, if it was a scale model, it was like a large, a very, very big one. Yeah, uh, I'm pretty sure it was a scale model. Uh, they but I don't it, know for sure. There were some really great shots when the Zeppelin was being introduced yeah. of it like bursting through the clouds. Yeah. You just see the clouds high up in the air, and then just... Uh, enormous zeppelin comes out through yeah. them which is amazing and then also yeah the commander of the zeppelin is uh very ruthless re- yeah. cartoonishly ruthless he it turns out that their friend carl is in that zeppelin uh and they are on a mission to drop some bombs on trafalgar square in london and uh carl is on this i wasn't aware of this being a thing but he's on this like little tadpole looking thing yeah that, little they, pod that, you, that they drop out the bottom yeah they they bring it down on a winch so that he can target the uh the, the bomb stuff dropping out of the zeppelin above him yeah because they're uh, above the clouds and they can't see down to where the bombs are gonna fall uh and carl is uh conflicted he uh has history in london and yeah. likes it's like British a month people. ago he was living there yeah and and they're like, pick the location to bomb. This whole thing depends on you. And and so he drop he tells them to drop the bombs over a lake. Yeah. And he's like, hey, direct hit. We blew up all of Trafalgar Square. And the people in the Zeppelin above him are like, great job. <laughs> uh, yeah. Which is that that's a cool scene, I think, because it's like him like acting wise, because it's him kind yeah. of having to make this decision to you know betray his country to do the right thing mm-hmm. or whatever right yeah you know once the bombs are dropped and you know they had they were going to drop a few bombs and then the the commanders gleefully like let's just drop some more like <laughs> de- destroy all of london they drop more bombs into the water 
but while Carl is getting uh, pulled back up on the winch, which is going to take like 10 minutes or whatever, Monty and Roy and a number of other people in airplanes mm. have uh, found the Zeppelin and have begun a chase. And to rise high up into the atmosphere where the uh, where the planes would not easily follow, they need to... Uh, lose a bunch of ballast weight from the Zeppelin very quickly. Uh, <laughs> so, might as well just cut the line for the guy in the pod. Yeah. And, and then have like half the crew jump out. Yeah, which is so which is so crazy. Uh, <laughs> I wonder if there is any like historical precedent for that happening, or if it's just a highly exaggerated example of kind of like the the German mindset in World War One of like sacrificing people willy-nilly yeah they were just like yeah it was like a whole like zero fighter situation of like just kill yourself for the greater cause right now like jump jump out of a zeppelin to your death please so yeah they 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 kill carl he falls to to his death and then like about a dozen other people from the ship just salute and then jump out yeah uh which is a pretty crazy scene it's pretty heavy yeah yeah but uh does it work Zeppelin still gets blown up. Yeah. There was a comment on YouTube of some person who was like, wow, like, like the people who jumped out, what good soldiers. And <laughs> like, yikes. I don't, I don't know, man. <laughs> like, this is a little more complicated than that. <laughs> I mean, I guess from a purely like military standpoint, maybe. Uh. <laughs> uh, it was presumably in a, a, a jingoistic American who was saying this. Yeah, but yes. Uh, to bring Roland Emmerich back into it, uh, they uh, the the Zeppelin finally goes <laughs> I down. See where, I see where this is going. <laughs> there, there is a uh, what they've they've shot down most of the planes, including Roy and Monty's. Uh, they're okay, but they kind of crash landed on the ground, mm-hmm. and uh, all the other planes have been shot down in various ways, except for one whose gun was jammed the entire time. Yeah. Uh, and he's like, doesn't anybody have any missiles left? <laughs> and so he's like, what do I do? We've got to get the Zeppelin. And so he's just like, he more, more suicide bombing. He just flies his plane straight into the Zeppelin and blows it up. Yeah. And it's cool as fuck. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's a plane flying into a Zeppelin, Zeppelin blown up in a big fireball. It rules. There is, you know, you're seeing part of this scene from the ground where Roy and Monty are, like, walking out of their plane. And then they see the Zeppelin blow up and they're like, hell yeah, you did it. And uh, and then the Zeppelin starts falling right toward them. And yeah. they just book it, like, away from the Zeppelin. And then there is an amazing shot, an amazing, oh, yeah. like, really wide Incredible. shot of the two of them running away and then just this enormous on fire zeppelin crashing to the ground in front of them. Yeah, and, and behind like, them. oh yeah, behind them. Yeah, and like I just audibly went, "Holy shit!" <laughs> <laughs> it's also, I mean, during World War One, I'm sure that phenomenon was observed. I'm sure people saw zeppelins getting blown up and shot down, and so like it was, people knew what it looked like. But it's crazy just how close that footage looks to the Hindenburg disaster. Yeah, right. It, it is. It's it's a work of effects and miniature and bigature and whatever. However, they did it, but it's like it's pretty wild how accurate it is. Just to like, yeah, everyone now knows exactly what this looks like. 
and they nailed it. Yeah, they had like the flaming skeleton of it. Yeah. And yeah, it, it, it looked it looked really amazing. And there was an intermission in the movie and it was right after that scene. Yeah. Uh, and I it well felt, placed. Yeah, it felt really good because like it could it allowed people to go out into the lobby and talk about how cool yeah. what they just saw. Holy was. shit, that Zeppelin scene was amazing. <laughs> Which is exactly what I did during the intermission. I just yeah. walked out and and <laughs> it was like, oh my god, that scene. It was so cool. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that's what uh, everyone did when this movie premiered. Uh, this movie's premiere was a big deal. I guess we could talk about that, too. Or should we talk about the end of the movie first? Sure. The movie ends with, right, They the brothers get shot down. They're involved in this, like, spy mission, right, where they're, they're, they use a stolen German bomber to bomb this munitions factory. And then they're escaping, and we get the big sort of third act dogfight scene. And they're actually shot down. And captured, and because they were in a stolen German plane, they're technically spies. Um, and they get brought to the Baron from the beginning of the movie, who, uh, you know, was behind the whole duel thing. Roy sort of convinces him, the Baron, to give him a gun with one bullet in it. To be, He's like, hey, like, I, I hate this other guy that I'm with, and, like, I want to, I'll tell you what... Uh, what you want to know, but I need, he needs to die. I don't really know what Roy's actual plan is here. He's like, okay, I have a gun now with one bullet. He fulfilled his plan. Like he, I mean, maybe he wanted to, like when he, he wanted all the bullets because he wanted to see if he could stage an escape. But like the reason why he wanted the gun with one bullet and he did this whole stunt was because Monty was about to tell them everything and uh, about an invasion plan and would have like, sentenced hundreds of people to their deaths uh so that he could get away uh and monty was or roy was like let me handle it uh and then he kind of posed as if he was going to do that instead of monty Mm -hmm. but he realized that he couldn't trust monty to not like spill the beans so he just shot his brother yeah in the back yeah (laughs) um and then roy is then because he was captured as a spy and refuses to give up any information, is then shot by a fragment squad. And that's the end of the movie. A yeah. brother murders his other brother and then is killed. Which is, yeah, just very much in line with the whole, like, just the nihilism I, I get from this movie. If just like, mm-hmm. yep, <laughs> bad, bad stuff. Like, Monty is introduced as a coward and he dies as one, kind of. And Roy is sort of like, I guess throughout the movie kind of held up as this, like you know, more moral or more upstanding of the two, but he still is like at best naive at worst, like completely incapable of reading people and just very, very selfish in his own way. Yeah. Self-destructively traditional in certain ways. I don't love this movie. It's uh, I think it has, (laughs) I think it has a lot of cool things about it. I think like the, the early, like two strip Technicolor stuff is cool. Yeah. You know, the airplane stuff is the Zeppelin bit is great you know and i think that comes across too with you can tell what howard hughes cared about the most he's like the zeppelin scene is gonna rule and then when it comes to like actual like character scenes he's like ah who cares yeah um it feels a lot less kind of feels make more it vaguely wingsy <laughs> yeah yeah this movie had a big premiere at the chinese theater in la and everybody who was everybody showed up buster keaton was there cecil b de was there 
Gloria Swanson, Douglas Fairbanks, Mary Pickford, all the the who's who of Hollywood. <laughs> there is footage of it. There's like newsreel footage on YouTube, which is kind of funny, um, which is then copied very accurately in in the movie The Aviator. Also, speaking of uh, World War One pictures, yeah, let's get to our final film of the episode: All Quiet on the Western Front. All Quiet on the Western Front. The uh, Academy Award winner for 1930. Yeah. For Best Picture. Or Outstanding Production, I believe, as it was called back then. Uh, and, uh, you know, spoilers for the upcoming favorites section, but I agree that this is the Best Picture of 1930. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. I uh, I liked... I don't know if we're getting into favorites immediately. I Yeah, it's either this or Borderline for me. I think this probably overall is... A more successful movie. This um, movie, um, this movie was very affecting for me. I, th- yeah. I was, I was bowled over by this. Uh, this is a, uh, this is an. I've rarely seen war movies that are this unambiguously anti-war because, mm-hmm. yeah, you know the thing that I always say, which I believe or. I, I bring up a lot, which I think is a reference or something that um, Truffaut said mm-hmm. uh, about it being yeah. impossible to make an anti-war movie because there's something that's glorifying about putting something on a movie screen. Yeah. And I think that this his, has done one of the best jobs that I can, that I've seen of a war movie uh, just feeling awful. Like, mm-hmm. like there's nothing to be proud of here. Like, this just sucks. Like, this is yeah. bad. Uh, and it not, it's like, it doesn't even, I like how much it doesn't necessarily just hit you over the head with it. Like it, it, uh, I think the, the Netflix adaptation, the, the German adaptation of this novel that came out last year, it, you know, goes way harder with how violent it is mm-hmm. in terms of like seeing just people being like torn apart by artillery and bayonets. And it's like, it's really, really, in, in, it's one of the most like violent movies I've probably ever seen. Wow. But I, I like how much this movie, this movie's pretty violent for when it was made, but I like how much of it is, naturally there's that element of war that sucks and is terrible and is completely dehumanizing, but there's also just like how much World War One was just sitting in a trench, not having food and like, you know, just the, the slow progression of like having your own humanity like stripped from you yeah um is i think the thing this movie gets and i think is i haven't read the novel but i think having seen now two different movie adaptations of it like that is sort of the main idea that is being put forth is sort of like the the cumulative effect of how it just like hollows people out yeah yeah like that scene in the trench where they're starving for you know a week or something like that it's it's Mm -hmm. rough like there are all these people who you know they're they're being shelled constantly so they can't like they can't leave their hole that they're in and they can't sleep because of all the noise yeah uh they're they you know they start eating sawdust and stuff yeah they're also children right they're all like 17 yeah yeah so it's like just that in addition as a thing that i think about with older wars, right? It's like how young the people were who usually fought in them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's tons of stories in World War One about people who lied about their age, who were like 14, who went to go fight 
in World War One. I'm like, you put a 14 year old in, in in a trench. Yeah, it's crazy. And there's a scene later in the movie. You know, they were kind of seniors in high school or whatever the German German yeah. equivalent of this was. But then uh, there's a scene where it's a few years later, and the main character is. Um, kind of back at the kind of training area and he's seeing uh the 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 like even younger people yeah who he, he are... goes back to his old school yeah he goes he goes back to but uh but he goes back to the base camp and mm-hmm. then he sees like all of these even younger teens who have just been like sent out on one mission and 80 percent of them died yeah. and uh and he's like, what are we even doing, you know? Yeah. And, yeah, there's a, another scene where he is home on leave because uh, he got injured. And the movie begins with his teacher in in school uh, basically telling him, like, telling him and his classmates uh, that it's noble to die for your country. You guys have a great opportunity here. Uh, like, this is so good and so right for you to do. And uh, it's so you're your heroes for doing it. And then he comes home and sees uh, a- after having his entire base of friends and classmates mm-hmm. be maimed or killed. Uh, he goes back home and sees that teacher doing the same thing to some more students who uh, and it horrifies him. And he says, like. He tells them, like, there's nothing good about this. Like, this is, like, yeah. about being a soldier. It's it's horrible. It's bad. Like, it, it it's it's pain and death. And then the students ha- are so bought in that they call him a coward and yeah. try and kick him out of the classroom. It did remind me of things I was reading about uh, Caligari and how that movie is, like, a response to the German experience of World War One. And how there was, like, people who fought in World War One came back and were like, we were lied to. Like, we were children who looked up to authority and they they told us all this stuff about the glory of war and that it would be an, a, an adventure and all this stuff. And they were just like, no, sir. Incorrect. How dare you? Like, yeah. we are betrayed and no longer trust authority as a concept anymore. <laughs> um, which is fair. And I think uh, I think this movie gets at that feeling pretty well. Even though, even if it's an American film, I don't think that there was quite that level of like disillusionment after World War One in the United States. I mean, it was certainly a much more distant thing for the U.S. because yeah, it was never yeah. on. You know, whatever conflict happened in the U.S. was like naval, right? It was like submarines blowing up ships and such. Like there was never, you know. Germany never invaded Florida. Yeah. Whereas I think certainly in like England and other parts of Europe and Germany, it's like, it's a much more kind of palpable wound uh, in their like cultural identity. Mm -hmm. And yeah, this, this is a, I think this movie is often held up as like one of the only examples of like, if an anti-war film is possible, right? Because of the, the Truffaut, sort of um paradox right of like is it possible to be truly anti-war when like film inherently kind of glorifies whatever you're you're filming yeah it's like this is i i think the 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 power of the the written 
material. Like, again, having not read the novel, but it's like the writing of it is so strong that I think it, yeah, it it really imparts uh, a real disillusionment with the entire idea of of war. There's there's a similar scene in this movie as in Wing or Wings, uh, Hell's Angels, mm. where the characters are talking about the futility and like pointlessness of the war Mm -hmm. and there it's like this kind of thing to make fun of but in here it's like it's coming from a genuine place Mm -hmm. and it 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 makes you believe it it makes you like you're you've witnessed these children be traumatized horrifically by everything going around on around them and they're like what why are we actually even doing this you know Mm -hmm. and it, it it is a genuine question in the movie uh, I, like you were saying, I think that like this being an American production is kind of interesting because, like you know, it's an American production in English, but based on a German book about Germans, uh, and it opens with the the first lines of the novel. Like it's got a little title, you know, title card at the beginning that's like the first paragraph in English mm-hmm. from the book. Like because it's not about Americans. I think it kind of sidesteps some of the issues that it that might arise if this movie were about Americans, mm. which uh, would be like this kind of tie to your own nation, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that like if you're making a war movie about your own nation's military, then there's this like reflexive support that you feel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, where this movie, I think, at least for American audiences, like allows you to be a little more dispassionate about what's going on because it is about Americans playing Germans and presumably Americans playing French people. Mm-hmm. So you can look at just the general idea of what it's trying to say. Yeah. Uh, the isolated from national feelings. Yeah. I would like to read the book. Having not seen two movies of it, it does seem like... And it's it's always kind of interesting just to compare the two. I don't think we need to get into that very heavily. Because I don't think you've seen the German one, right? I have not, no. But it's, you know, a lot of the same... They have kind of the same big scenes, right? The big kind of turning point scenes are all the same. Um, or very similar. Like, there's... Maybe my favorite scene in both movies is when... Uh, Paul, the lead character, is stuck in a crater with a a French soldier that he's just stabbed, but he's still lit alive. And they don't speak the same language, and they're both just hiding in there, and the French guy is slowly dying over the course of hours or days. And Paul goes from, you know, immediately stabbing this guy to try to kill him, to talking with him and trying to almost sort of, like, keep him alive. And then he finally dies, and it's like it. You just you see like Paul's brain breaking throughout this. Yeah, whole because scene. there are parts where like his military training is kicking in, and and he like uh, starts acting more aggressively toward the guy. Yeah, uh, and then and then he just pulls himself back. He's like, "Oh no, no, you're my brother. I'm so sorry." You know? Yeah, and he like he's like giving him water, and he's like trying to keep him alive, and he's like, "I'm so sorry for what I did. Like I was afraid. You like I thought you were my enemy." And then he finally dies, and it's almost like he gets angry with him again for dying. It's, uh, yeah, it's a very, it's, 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 it's really a very good. intense, powerful scene that I think 
if I have one criticism of this movie, it's that I think the lead actor who plays Paul, uh, Lou Ayers, Ayers, mm-hmm. his acting style is very 1930s, I guess. Like, it's very big. Yeah. And there's moments that don't feel as maybe truthful as I wish they did for this movie. I think he does a good job in a lot of parts, but yeah, there are definitely some things that are done a little too big. And this was an early role for him, too. Yeah. But that being, like, I think for when this movie was made and when it came out, I think uh, he is well cast and is still, I mean, it's, you know, one of these pitfalls of being like an early talkie. People didn't really know quite how to act on film in many ways. I will say that it was like less naturalistic than we're used to seeing now, but um. It is, I think, for the time, it is a good performance. I don't want to badmouth it. The uh, the soldier, the French soldier who was dying in that pit uh, is named Raymond Griffith. And he was uh, a comedian in a bunch of silent movies. Uh, but uh, he is someone who... This was his last movie he ever made. Not because he died, but because he was able to be a silent film star because he lost his voice when he was a kid. And Whoa. so he played a character who, who could not speak. speak. Yeah. Wow. That's that's crazy. Yeah. Damn. And and also speaking to this um as a sound movie, I thought the sound design in it was incredible. Every aspect of the direction of this movie I think is pretty incredible. Like this is this is easily the best directed sound film that we've watched. Yeah, I mean this is this is like verging on the one like the best movie that we've seen so far to me. I wouldn't hold it up that highly, but I can see why it's it's definitely up there. Yeah, uh, that's more of a matter of personal preference than anything else. Yeah, but yeah, this is a very it's a very well made movie. But yeah, the sound design in this, like the the just explosions in the background, the when they're stuck in the trench, like the the dust falling down from the ceiling and just like this kind of yeah like in in the out and out battle scenes like the kind of extreme gunshots and explosions noises i think it all sounds really really good um Mm -hmm. and notable also is that this movie doesn't have a score which is pretty Mm -hmm. common in early sound movies it's funny that the broadway melody actually had some uh non-diegetic music but now there's like a lot of stuff that like now that sound is getting more established it feels like nine non-diegetic score music is becoming less like not it's not much of a yeah thing. i did morocco have a score that had, had plenty so. of music and i don't no. think it ever had score yeah hell's yeah. angels did but um i don't think morocco does yeah this movie has no score and in fact like i think a score was added later and the director mm. uh lewis milestone um was vehemently against it and mm-hmm. and campaigned for its removal which it eventually was it is almost i think this movie is a good example of uh with the introduction of sound silence takes on additional weight mm-hmm. because like the choice not to have sound is then much more deliberate and so i think the parts of this movie where they pull the sound out are actually like you really feel the silence of them yeah for sure yeah, there's there's a lot of like off-screen dialogue and off-screen sound effects, which are things like this is a movie where if you took the sound out, it would really feel like it was missing something. Yeah. And there is a silent version of this movie. 
this was a process that a lot of movies went through uh, in yeah. this early sound era uh, where they made a kind of sunrise style version that is silent with intertitles, but then has sound effects and music. And that was the, and it was also edited slightly differently, the silent version of this. Uh, so that's also, um, yeah, uh, there, there is a silent version. <laughs> I know. I feel like we've kind of like, do we want to talk about the plot anymore? Like, I guess we don't need to. They no. go, they go to war. Everyone dies. <laughs> they go to war and they string from like terrible thing to terrible thing. Some are like uh, terrible in a life threatening way, and yeah. some are terrible in like a sort of interpersonal way. And then occasionally there's some levity, <laughs> just to give you contrast. I do actually think the levity in this movie is like incredibly important to have like those few moments of lightness in them because even those kind of feel like really mundane in a way where it's like they find a poster of a woman and they're like, oh my God, look at this, look at this lady. Just seeing a poster of a woman, they're just like, oh, what a, what a life we could be we could be living right now. Um, or, you <laughs> know, they, they get... Traumatized they get, teens. They get double the amount of beans that they would get. And they're like, it is the best thing that has ever happened. They're like, we have two bowls of beans today. And it's, <laughs> yeah, just to see how kind of... The, the smallest amount of kind of um, comfort that they can find is like incredibly important to these people. Because, yeah, they're children who have been asked to you know sit in a trench and kill people for years on end i think like another kind of source of a lot of the levity in this movie is uh the character cat who love cat is great uh, great guy (laughs) he's like kind of the their commanding officer but he's not like a tyrant like the first one that they had the mailman uh, yeah (laughs) uh he is like someone who gets it basically he's like yeah yeah like this is bad and there's nothing good about it and we're just making yeah. the best of a good he, right of a situation he, he's, he's very can. jaded but at the same time he's not he's not a stickler for rules he's he's just like we are just trying to survive like that's the best we can do if we have to steal food if we have to you know do whatever we gotta do that's fine and yeah, he's definitely he's a source of levity and also of kind of like perspective, right? He's a little bit older than the rest of the characters. Mm-hmm. And uh but yeah, then he is killed unceremoniously from a leg wound that he just bleeds out from. I think he might have gotten like nicked in the back of the neck or something again during that scene. Right. It's sort of unclear whether or not it's the leg wound killed him or if he was more gravely injured than he let on. Mm-hmm. It's not like a big death scene right it's just like he gets hurt and then they bring him back to camp it's like oh he's dead he died yeah on the way back which it, it feeds into like what the movie is doing which is yeah. like there's nothing heroic about these deaths and it's just random and horrible yeah he wasn't time. fighting in a battle even they were just out yeah. like for a walk and a bomb landed on them and that's kind of like the last i feel like the kind of like last amount of paul's humanity kind of leaves when he finds that that cat has died like he's the last friend that he Mm. has Mm -hmm. and it's because they've all died yeah right and then it's he is this kind of just like he he's lost all will to to even survive at that point and so then it's like the end of the movie which is great is he sees a butterfly and it's like this one tiny symbol of like hope or beauty in the world and it's like he reaches out to get the butterfly and he gets shot 
Yeah. The meaning behind that imagery is very... It's poignant. It's very easy to understand, but it, yeah, it is very poignant and uh, and good. Good movie. Cat, he's played by Louis Wolheim, uh, who was normally cast as like bruisers and villains in movies. Yeah, sort of a sort of a Wallace uh, Beery type. He's got like he's got a kind of chunky face yeah. that with he's a, one of them, a one of them chunky previously faced, broken nose chunky face 1930s uh, actors he looks like yeah he looks like he could be a boxer or a wrestler or something and and so he's kind of playing against type here as like a softy uh mm-hmm. and he does a really good job at it uh lewis milestone the director uh had previously cast him against type in uh, a comedy movie that he made the previous mm. year one other kind of note is that like we touched on that scene where paul goes back um mm-hmm. and sees the class but you know he's on leave for like six days and he leaves after one day because he's realized that the war has changed him so much that he can't relate to anybody anymore yeah and uh and then also he's just disgusted at the way that the the powers that be or, or the the kind of older men who aren't fighting in the war are treating it like a game yeah, they're sort uh, of backseat generals who are like looking at maps and like, oh, what they what they should have done is this. And he's like, this is terrible. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That that like that scene, no war happening, but it's like that scene is one of the most sort of like powerful scenes of like what war does to people. Like they come back and they they don't know how to function anymore because they've yeah. been conditioned just to live in these very specific terrible circumstances, which is still you know a, a problem with veterans coming back from war so and uh uh, along with the lines of this being like a pre-code movie Mm -hmm. got gore in it we mentioned yeah there's some pretty shocking gore uh at at some points in particular there's a part where there's a french soldier who's running toward uh toward some razor wire uh to try and go through it and then a bomb blows up right next to him and then there are just disembodied hands on yeah. the razor wire as the rest of him has been exploded yeah and you're like oh, oh my god you know amazing shot just a such a straightforward visual that is like it really like the brutality of it but also just like the weirdness of it is yeah. like really sticks in the brain i think but yeah i guess we forgot to mention during hell's An- the talking about hell's angels that also there's some cussing in it too uh True. yeah where uh pretty pretty extreme for the time there 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 are two there's a god damn it and and two son of a bitches mm. in in that movie which uh <laughs> which is two like sons of bitch i don't think i even clocked that when i was watching it i did also read about that but it's it's so tame by today's standards that i didn't even think about it but it is something that yeah would never have happened in a uh you know, a Hay- a Hayes Code era film. Yeah. You know, a post nineteen thirty four movie would absolutely not say "son of a bitch." <laughs> you know, or if they did, it would be like a huge deal. Right. Uh, but yeah, this one is more pushing it with the violence. I would yeah. Say. Which I don't think I think we even talked about like the battle scenes in, in this movie are super intense. Yeah. And I think are less. Um, I think the battle scenes in Wings are like really impressive for their scale. mm Hmm. Whereas this are, I think, 
it's the scale is also there. It's like they're staged very well and it's clearly huge, lots of extras, everything's blowing up. But I think it kind of puts you in a bit more of a a subjective point of view uh, than Wings. Wings was all about kind of like this big you know, picture of like these massive battle scenes and planes flying overhead. And this is much more like looking out through a tiny hole in a wall and seeing all this stuff. You know, it's like it, it feels very sort of from the perspective of the soldiers. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were a couple shots in this of like mortars landing or like things blowing up that were just still insane to see because they're just doing it for real. You know, I don't know yeah. if they're using actual artillery or not, but it's like, yeah, there's some some kind of job jaw dropping stuff, and it's well directed too. Like, there's lots of great like uh, cameras on a track a lot of the time, just like tracking through stuff. A lot of really good camera movement, great sound design, and that stuff. Yeah, there's some good parts where they're able to do some more freeform movement with the camera by having mm-hmm. having sort of pre-recorded sound over it. Yeah. So there's like dialogue over camera moving, but it's dialogue that was recorded and then placed right. on top of it uh, so that, that you could do much more dynamic stuff, which yeah. I thought was a really good way of getting around mm-hmm. the issues that they had. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a, it's a great sort of this is maybe the first movie that we've watched that feels like it is kind of properly using both methods of like recording stuff while the camera is running, but then also pre-recording stuff or recording stuff after to allow for a freer use of the camera. Good movie. Good movie. This movie was banned in Germany amongst other places. Not right away, but um, in Germany, this movie was attacked by uh, Nazis who, um, was straight up like attack screenings. Like they would show up and they would throw stink bombs and like, you know, beat people up who, who tried to get into the theater and like, they released rats into the theaters. Yeah. And, uh, it got, I guess maybe because of that pressure, maybe there was some other political pressure, but this movie was banned before the Nazis took power in 33. It was definitely banned after that. And uh, the book was also banned and was one of the first to be publicly burned. Hmm. Other countries banned the movie. I mean, it's very obvious why Nazis hated this movie. It's because it is the least nationalistic thing that is extremely anti-war and is like, (laughs) hey, old German men leading people to war. Bad. Don't do it. Right. But uh, other countries banned this purely on the stance that it was seen as pacifist propaganda, which is wild. Yeah. It's wild to be like, this movie is too anti-war. Like, we got to have some more pro-war stuff out in the world. Yeah, I mean, people have been killed over that, so. Yeah, it's just, it's crazy to think of a movie being banned for that reason. But it happened. Yeah. The book was also banned for similar reasons. Sometimes up until, like, the 50s or the through the 70s. Like, it was banned for a while. The author of this book, Eric Maria... uh Remark, um, speaking of Marlena Dietrich and her many affairs, they had an affair later on in the 1930s, so good ah. for them. Uh, the director, Lou Milestone, uh, kind of went on to make a lot more Hollywood movies. Yeah, yeah. Including Mutiny on the Bounty and uh, Ocean's Eleven, the original yeah. Ocean's Eleven. Quite a filmography. Yeah. Yeah, this movie is it, it's definitely sort of uh, in the pantheon of like, the great Hollywood movies, and I think it is yes. deservedly so. 
think it's pro- um, like like the first great sound movie. Yeah, probably. I don't like. Maybe it's just the fact that I'd seen it before. But yeah, I don't know. I didn't have a super strong like emotional reaction to this movie. I really admire how well made it is, but I don't feel like I saw it was like, oh, my heart, you know, which is. Yeah, I guess I didn't remember enough from the last time that I saw it that. Uh, yeah, maybe, it, maybe I'm me as if it was the first time. Maybe I'm just so hollowed out from having seen too many war movies. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, if we're to move into favorites, it's my favorite. What do you think? I'm going to say borderline just to be, uh, contrarian and to have a, a different, cause I, I think I, my enjoyment of both was about the same. And I'm, okay. I mean, I was also, I saw borderline under very good circumstances of being able to see an actual yeah. projection of it and that sort of thing. I think borderline is less, it's less concerned with sort of like telling a narrative than I think all quiet is. Uh, but it's, I don't know. I, I appreciated just the fact that it's like trying a bunch of stuff that yeah. I think we're in an era now where movies are starting to really kind of fall into a a, a rut of sameness of like, okay, we know how to do this now. Like stuff kind of looks the same and it's, you know, there's, you can kind of, you can still kind of feel some of the, the, uh, the weight that having to record sound put on production, even if already it's, you know, the movies this year were so much better than, the ones from 28 or 29. So yeah, <laughs> I'm very much looking forward to, I mean, we got, we got a real doozy of a year next episode. So yeah. So perfect episode for spooky season. We're going to be talking about some, uh, universal monster pictures. Ah, just in time though. Just in time for, yeah. For well, Halloween. Uh, and yeah, we'll be probably be addressing some universal monsters in October as well. Cause you know they're they're out there. Yeah. They're, we can talk about the dark universe some more. Yes, the original <laughs> dark universe. Uh, well, with that silly reference, I think that'll be uh, <laughs> that'll be about it for this episode. Indeed. Uh, thank you all for watching and listening. Uh, make sure to uh, leave comments and to follow us on stuff. It's all in the <laughs> description. You know what yeah. to do. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, that, that'll be about it. And the beginning of the 1930s. Very exciting. Yeah. We're in the talkie who'd, era. Who, who'd have thought we'd make it this far? Yeah. This is the longest that I've ever stuck it does, to doing anything. <laughs> it does feel like with the beginning of the 1930s, it's like, oh yeah, we're entering like a whole new era, kind of. I think we said yeah. this last episode also, but it's, um, it feels significant. The stuff that we're watching feels very different from 10 episodes ago, you know? Yeah. 40 down, and uh, in 40 more, I'll see you for 2001 Space Odyssey or whatever. (laughs) Uh, All right. Well, that's about it. Glenn, I'll see you next year. See you next year.